Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 podcast kit, visit shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit theoldmillpress.com. And by listeners like you. Podcast talking all things Disney with your hosts L. John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome back to Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every week, we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, as well as what's streaming, what's playing in theaters, and what's going on in the universe of entertainment. I'm Al John Go, lifelong. Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culture fan. And you can email me, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and we're back in the saddle here at the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also email me, at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Al John, we were on vacation yeah. for a couple of weeks. This is a brand new show. Yes. And, and I'm excited because we've got Don Hahn and Max Howard, um, the dynamic duo. Uh, <laughs> and we're going to be talking Roger Rabbit exclusively. Roger Rabbit, the 35th anniversary with uh, two of the guys that were really integral parts of the making of this movie. I mean, they were important people in the top echelon of who framed Roger Rabbit. Well, not only, yes. And and welcome back, Dave. And, and so Max, not only just a Disney legend, but just a film legend, you know, head of Warner brothers and head of Disney over there in, in, in yeah. the, uh, the London studio. And then you have Don Hahn, uh, Disney legend, prolific producer, and here they are talking to us and, and you, Dave, also involved intimately in the project, being involved in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And it's just going to be an awesome show. And uh, yeah, it's good. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to uh, talking with them. Um, how was your vacation? Vacation was good. You know, we took the kids back to their second trip to Walt Disney World Resort and we stayed at Coronado Springs. It's one of my favorite resorts there with the Destino Tower and uh, the kids just ran around. It was really all about them. And so we were able to get her on um, Goofy Sky School, Barnstormer, whatever you want to call it these days. And uh, and she had a blast. It was her first kind of kitty coaster. So all we right. had that. And then uh, we had a photo shoot at Magic Kingdom with the photo pass people. And that was really good. And, you know, yeah, the kids were crazy and they were running around. It was total information overload for them again. But uh, total mayhem, yeah, total mayhem. But we had you know dinner with Snow White and Grumpy and and the Evil Queen and 
and uh, that was a lot of fun. They met Stitch. It was just, and they met the Mandalorian too. We went there. Well, with I a, saw the pictures that you yeah. posted uh, of the kids meeting the Mandalorian. Yeah. How was that? It was great. They loved seeing the Mandalorian, and of course, Baby Yoda, aka Grogu, and animatronic that he was uh, that he was holding, and they were totally fascinated and engaged. It just uh, warmed my heart um, that they just love meeting those characters and, and the face characters and everybody, uh, all those great cast members. So we, we had a great time and the cast members were top notch. Um, so yeah, I, I, I was really, I was happy. I, it, the kids are crazy. You can hear in the background. They're, they're going <laughs> they're around chasing to go, each other. They're, they're wanting to go back to Walt Disney world. Why did they go back? And we got them. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, they had a lot of fun. We had great times at wine bar, George, they hosted us for dinner, which was awesome. So thank you to their team. But um, they got their first lightsabers day of the little kitty trainer lightsabers, Wow. And they just love that, and they got their uh, Spider-Man Avengers stuff, so they're just all about all of that stuff now. So there you that go. That's so awesome. Yeah. You know, it's so, it's so wonderful taking small children. I remember taking my daughters to to Disneyland and to Disney World, and you know, it's it, it's just magical when you're with children because they're just they're seeing it for the first time, you know, yeah. and they believe they're believing, they believe. you know? Yeah, yeah. They believe. And it's really cool because, you know, Snow White, they watch all the classic Disney films all the time. So when they were able to meet Snow White and Dopey and Grumpy and the evil queen, of course, they all got their pictures taken. And as soon as, you know, Snow White came, they're like, Snow White, Snow White, they're going crazy. And then when the evil queen, we got our pictures taken. As soon as we leave, my, my son goes, you're a bad queen. <laughs> <laughs> like, don't let her hear you say that that's awesome that oh my so gosh awesome. so they were totally playing the part but you know that that's what it's all about now how about you dave you just came back uh from your kind of week uh, your week-long retreat there up north yeah well normally it's two weeks and this year i only did a week okay. uh i was up in maine uh my annual retreat by myself um and i did some printmaking for the week uh, had a great time. The weather was terrific. I had, it was one day of rain, but you know, it was so refreshing compared to the fact that I left California and it was 105 at my place. <laughs> uh, so going up to Maine, uh, and just having, you know, seventies, low eighties weather was just perfect. Uh, and being on the coast and having that, uh, that breeze coming off the water, um, you know, the shop doors open and, you know, it was just really, really pleasant. And uh, I had a good time, but I think I have to make up for the fact that I only did one week this year. I'm going to probably do three weeks next year. Oh, so, wow. Okay. Yeah. You better I, I put some to. shows in the can. Yeah, it's, there's, just too, there's just too much craziness going on uh, the, this year with, uh, you know, with my Nightmare Before Christmas book coming out, my House of the Future book coming out mm -hmm. and, you know, just you know, so much happening. Um, and you know, my daughter getting married, it's just been crazy. That's awesome though, because that's what we live for. You know, yeah. there's so many great things going on and you're so busy and, uh, busy is great for a creative mind, a creative person like yourself, you know, that's when your juices get going and, and, and you're promoting all these great projects and you're working on brand new projects. So, you know, that's hats off to you, man, because you're keeping busy out there. It it has been busy. And, and by the way, I know we, we don't have a lot in the way of podcast comments, but I did want to make one comment. Oh, okay. Uh, I, actually, I over the last several weeks, I've gotten, I've run into people and I've seen folks uh, and 
I keep getting great feedback oh, from good. folks who are listening to the to the podcast and who are really enjoying it and and people who are just discovering it who are now working their way backwards through a lot of our previous interviews awesome. um so it's really it's it's it, i find it heartwarming to hear that from the folks out there that are listening especially people who are in the industry uh, you know, who are working in the industry, who are listening to the podcast and really enjoying it. You know, that that says a lot to me, because as I've said in the past, Al John, when you're in this business, you become jaded very quickly, you know, <laughs> and, and and to be impressed or to enjoy something really speaks volumes to to whatever that is. You yeah. know, and in, in this case, a lot of these folks are saying, you know, they're really enjoying our podcast. So I I love hearing that feedback and it makes us want to do, you know, even more. And we have shows going, you know, we have shows banked right now into October. Yeah. Which yeah. is crazy. It is, but you know, we, we do it, we love it and it's so much fun and I'm glad people are discovering the show and going back in the show archives and checking out all the great interviews because they're just gems. Um, you know, people, people love discovery if they're big fans like we are and it's great to just present this content for them week in and week out. And, um, so thank you so much to everyone listening and sharing the show and, talking us up to your friends or just discovering it. Thank you for those subscriptions. We appreciate it. Anyway, Dave. Yeah. Um, before we launch into the awesome epic interview with Don and Max, um, what have you been checking out this week? Because, you know, we've been gone. Now, there we go. See, I, I have one job is to play that sound effect. Uh, we go. have our picks <laughs> for the week. Um, since we've been on hiatus a uh, couple weeks now, what have you been seeing? Were you able to catch up while um, while you were away? Or yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, uh, it, it, it's really uh, amazing because the the weekend that Oppenheimer and Barbie opened, um, I was uh, heading up to Maine. Uh, and I was really concerned that I wasn't going to be able to see Oppenheimer in IMAX, but I managed to see it when I got back. And I got to tell you what an epic film that is. Uh, Christopher Nolan does not disappoint. Uh, and Cillian Murphy, who plays uh, Robert Oppenheimer, is just fantastic. Uh, this this movie to me is not only a work of art and a beautifully crafted film. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an important piece of history. Yeah. You know, and I have to say that this is a it's a must see film because I think you're going to see a lot about this in award season. I think this film is going to be nominated uh, not only for Academy Awards, but Golden Globes and other awards. I, it's a must see film uh, of the year, I think. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I give it, you know, two thumbs up, uh, go out and see this film. Uh, it really is, uh, an amazing, uh, movie. Nice. Nice. It's on now, my list. It's on my list. we got to go check okay. it out. Yeah. And you should see it on a big screen if you can. Okay. You know, uh, if you can, uh, the other, uh, film I went to see and riddle me this Batman. Okay. Why didn't the haunted mansion open in late September, early October for Halloween. 
I don't understand it. I don't either. You know, they they open this movie and it hasn't really done the kind of business. And I'll tell you why it hasn't done the kind of business. This is a this is a Disney Plus movie. They should have oh. just put this on Disney Plus. Oh. They really should have. You know, look, it's a great cast. There's some fun stuff. They pay. They certainly play homage to the Haunted Mansion attraction um, at the parks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it, it's a it's a TV movie. It's a Disney Plus movie. It's not it's not a theatrical film in my mind. Um, I thought the visual effects that were done on this film uh, were weak. Uh, they weren't really that great. Oh. Um, and um, you know, it, it's a meh. It's an okay film. Oh, that's so disappointing. You know? well, uh, but but what I don't understand is why wouldn't you release this in early October and play into Halloween? You would think that. You would really I mean, think I, that. I, honestly, I I really I don't I don't get it. Anyway, it's a star-studded you know, cast. I had high expectations for it. My wife and I wanted to see it when we were yeah. there at Disney. I mean, you have the likes of Rosario Dawson, Owen Wilson, Jamie Lee mm-hmm. Curtis, Danny DeVito. I mean, the list goes on and on. Yeah. And just for a meh, oh, that's that just that that, that kills me. Yeah, it, it was disappointing to me as well. And, and I would just tell our audience, don't spend your money at the theater for this. Wait for it to come on to Disney Plus Oof. and watch it then. OK. OK. All right. Um, the next film I went to see was The Last Voyage of the Demeter. Yeah. Uh, now, you know, Al John, I'm not a horror film person, uh-huh. you know, but I did go to see this because there was nothing else for me to see. Oh, uh, this is a last and, resort film. I see. <laughs> <laughs> and my friend Rick, who I go to the film, go to the movies with on a weekly basis, you know, he he wanted to see it, uh, and then had second thoughts because the re- reviews that were coming out were panning it. Mm. Um, but I would say, you know, this is a film that is extremely well done. You know, mm-hmm. this this is a theatrical film. Mm. Um, the uh, effects. Uh, are beautifully done. Uh, it, it's a gorgeous-looking movie. I'm glad I saw it on the big screen. Uh, but it was pedestrian, is how I would uh, describe it. It was sort of a pedestrian film. The um, uh, the crew on board this ship that's transporting Dracula and some of his uh, followers yeah. uh, to London from Romania. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it becomes repetitive how each one gets picked off. Sure. You know, and and they're being picked off basically in the same way. Yeah, it's like aliens yeah. on a it's like aliens on a little ship. Yeah, ship. exactly. You know, yeah. um, and, um, you know, I I just went, eh, OK, it, you know, it was OK. It okay. wasn't a great film. All right. So that that's my <laughs> review on it. How's that? You know, oh, that, that works. A couple of May's in here. Okay. Yeah. I see. Okay. <laughs> uh, I finished watching Muppet Mayhem on Disney plus and uh, you know, we had Bruce Lenoil on. I just love Muppet Mayhem. Yeah. If you're, if you're just looking for something to, to just, you know, have fun with and, and get a few laughs, watch Muppet Mayhem. It's, it's really terrific on Disney plus uh, really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Um, found a show. Uh, we've watched a number of episodes. I think there's only like three or four seasons of this. It's called My Life is Murder. Okay. And it's a New Zealand show. 
And you know who stars in it? Okay. Lucy Lawless. Do you remember oh, Lucy my Lawless? Girl, Zena the Warrior Princess. Zena the Warrior Princess. Exactly. I love it. She's she's the lead in this uh My Life is Murder. She plays a retired detective uh who the police department comes to with cases that you know they feel they can't spend any more resources on, but something's not right with it. And Lucy Lawless uh, sets out to uh, solve those murders. Doesn't she have, well, doesn't she have the best name? Oh, it's a fantastic name. Lucy Lawless. I mean, what a yeah, great you, name. I mean, you can't, you can't make that up. No, she's know? like a punk rocker, like Iggy Pop. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it's such a great yeah, name. Exactly. So, but, you know, My Life is Murder is okay. is streaming on Acorn TV. Cool. Which you, can, you, which you can get through Prime if you want it. I love it. Um, the other one uh, that we, we watched, uh, the second season of uh, The Lincoln Lawyer uh-huh. uh, on Netflix. Uh, the second season has dropped. Uh, I, I have to tell you the first, first episode, part of the second episode, it was sort of, eh, you know, not, not that great. It picks up steam. I think the first, the second season is very good. I've enjoyed it. I, I will tell our, our listeners, I have a very good friend, my friend Rick, who I go to the movies with weekly. Uh, and he, you know, he's a real film fan. Um, uh, he's also a lawyer. And I, I told him, you know, you should watch Lincoln Lawyer. And he got through a couple of episodes and he said, that is the most unrealistic. You know, <laughs> he just went off on that is not how lawyers work. And that's how that's not how the law works. And this and that, you know, but I said, suspend your knowledge of the law and watch this from the standpoint of entertainment. I found, I find the show entertaining. I've enjoyed it. So uh, the Lincoln lawyer on Netflix. Okay. But if you're a lawyer, you're going to, you're going to pick it apart. Okay. Just, I'll just say that. How's that? And then the other show that we watched, which is really, really terrific. Okay. Bloodlands. Oh, it's two seasons filmed in Northern Ireland. Uh, it, it follows uh, a corrupt um, police detective uh, and unravels uh, a mystery of, uh, you know, several deaths. Uh, there's, there's undercurrents of, you know, the IRA and, terrorism and all of that kind of stuff. Interesting. It, it, it is a really well done show. Bloodlands on Acorn TV, two seasons. And this, and I think it's only like five or six episodes per season. Oh, wow. Easy, easy yeah. bingey. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's really well done. You know, I have to say Acorn TV, uh, who knew, you know, I, I, I had no idea until you mentioned it now. Yeah, Acorn TV. yeah there's a lot of great shows on there. Uh, check them out. You know, Whoa. I mean, you know, look, with all these streaming services, we're all looking for good things to watch. Yeah. And there's a lot of junk out there. There is There's a lot of stuff that you don't want to waste your time on. And so I think for you and I to do this segment on this show, it's really sort of putting a spotlight on some some shows that people might not normally, you know, hear about or or stumble on. Uh, and, you know, all I can say is, you know, check out some of our recommendations. Al John, what have you been watching? All right. So the wifey and I went to the theater a couple of times over the past week and uh 
This is great because we were able to see something brand new. It is Talk to Me. Um, this is a horror film. <laughs> Imagine that. You see, if people <laughs> love horror, they love my segment. Um, a group of friends discover how to conjure spirits using an, an embalmed hand that they become hooked on using this for thrills. And, and of course, one of them goes a little too far, unleashing uh, supernatural forces. So this film is not what I expected it to be. Um, I expected it to be kind of like teen drama uh, meets Ouija kind of, you know, kind of film, which it is, but there's a little bit of a twist involved there. So that, that gives me a little bit of a thumbs up. And I thought it was, there was some really dramatic moments and I, it was interesting because the premise is the more you use this, this, kind of artifact this embalmed hand to clinch while you're 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 you know doing the whole uh conjuring of these spirits and being used as a medium that's exactly what happens they get this euphoric high from doing it so the kids are just like they find this new trendy thing that they're doing it's kind of like you know being hooked on some viral thing and they just do it and do it and it's like i guess it's also commentary on how youth latches on to certain things yeah. And they they think it's great until it goes horribly wrong. And it goes really <laughs> really wrong really really quick and it's not good. So, you know, I guess cautionary tale in some aspects. But uh you know, I give it a thumbs up. It it works for me. It's uh, well acted by a very young cast. Um I also saw, saw Sound of Freedom in a theater. Awesome. What did you and think of that? So, a lot of people are giving this movie a lot of uh flack. Um because of the politics involved. And I don't necessarily see it as that at all. Uh, the, the boilerplate reads um, the incredible true story of a former government agent turned vigilante who embarks on a dangerous mission to rescue hundreds of children from sex traffickers. And this is loosely based on a real true story of someone who does it, um, who uh, Tim Ballard, a real person played by Jim Caviezel um, is a real life rescue uh person i guess worked for the i guess um the government uh uncovering child trafficking and we know that this happens uh a lot of people liken modern day child trafficking to uh real life slave slave ownership and that's kind of what happens i mean i opened up uh, I, I was educated in a lot of respects because I was kind of digging through what this this film uh, layers is all about. But the bottom line is, no matter the po- political affiliation of the studio or the people involved in making it, it's a good film. And it does sound a wake-up call because, you know, um, people can sell illicit drugs and everything and score their money. But when you can sell children into this this line, uh, this horrible line of, of slavery or whatever you want to call it, child trafficking, people are making money hand over fist over this. And it just needs to be stopped. You know, the government needs to get in and stop this. It's, it's a really horrible thing. So it was a very eye opening uh, film for me because you think of this happening to teenagers and other people. You don't think of it happening to children that are my own age, uh, my own children's age. So it kind of struck a chord with me. So wow. um it's it's hardcore and it's based on real life and and it's worth and worth seeing. It's worth seeing. 
Yes. All right. Yeah, I give it a thumbs up in my opinion. I think Jim did a, a great job and kudos to the people behind it. So there you go. Awesome. Uh, so I also saw the movie you saw when it first came out, uh, Where the Crawdads Sing on Netflix. <laughs> you uh, you read the book. Did, what'd you think? I thought it was good. I mean, I don't have any other frame of reference for this because I know it's based on a best-selling book, but uh, I thought it was good. And I kind of saw the twist from a mile away, but yeah. uh, I didn't want to. I didn't want to believe that it was going to happen, but it certainly happened. Um, and I think it's just one of those stories that it, it is kind of like a period film, you know. And well, it is a period film a lot uh, because it is kind of. And, yeah. um, but I, I enjoyed it. Um, I didn't hate it, Dave. So, I mean, is it a man? Well, no, it's a, it's yeah, slightly but, more than a man. It's a good, it, I liked it. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, it's more of a chick flick, wouldn't you say? Oh yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. The wife bent my arm to see it because I was like, ah, Dave already told me what's up with that. And after her <laughs> friends were like, you need to really see this film. It's on Netflix already. Now just go see it. And she's like, okay, can we see it? Al John? I was like, okay, sure. Why not? So, so you I know something, sucked, yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll say what I, I said when it first came out. Um, I read the book first uh-huh. and then saw the film. I think the book is better. I don't think you see the twist a mile away um, in the book. Uh, uh, and uh, I also felt like there was some aspects of the movie that could have been done a lot better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially I and I harped on this when the movie came out, that opening shot where you're fo- you're you're following the bird into the marsh. Yes. You know, it, it it's terribly done. It, it <laughs> looks so CG. It's yeah. horrible. Yeah. It was hard for me not to get those words out of my mind from you, Dave, when I saw, I saw <laughs> I'm that. Sorry. I was, I'm I was, sorry I corrupted uh, you. <laughs> I was watching the film and I was waiting for that CG, that damn CG bird. And what do you know? <laughs> Here it comes flying in. I was like, Damn, it, it just right. really destroyed the the opening for me. I mean, that that, that opening uh, sequence should have pulled me into the film. It should have, you know, yeah. it should not have had me sitting in the theater going, what the hell is that? Oh, it was very, it was very, it was very Forrest Gump like Dave. It was yeah, very Forrest Gump like, but you know, Hey, whatever, whatever. But it, it's a good, it's it's good film. It's not no, bad. no, it's not a terrible film at all. I no. mean, it's worth seeing. It's on Netflix. You should watch it. Yeah, kudos to the lead. She she did a good job. Yeah. Um, I also saw Renovations, Dave. I've been watching Renovations with Jeremy Renner on Disney Plus. And let me tell you, if you don't think by by watching this series that Jeremy Renner is not a person with a heart of gold, I don't. You probably have no soul, because wow. Jeremy Renner is showing off the fact that he cares about people about his fellow uh, fellow man neighbors if you will and he just wants to give back and that's why he got into that plow accident earlier this year he was just helping people and uh, yeah. you know he's just a great person and i love the way this sh- the show is shot because it's it shot uh, seemingly it's shot on film i don't know if you've, you've seen it take a look at it dave for for a little bit but uh, i just love the way this show is shot it's not shot like every other reality-based um kind of flip this house kind of series it's uh, there's some thought put into it so kudos to the renovation and jeremy renner for that uh yes you know i i 
I'm glad to hear that because I saw in your notes it said renovations and then in parentheses D plus. Oh, and Disney I keep plus. thinking, my gosh, he's giving it a D plus. What's no, wrong with no, it? No, it's from Disney. And then plus. I go, oh no, it's on Disney it's, Plus. <laughs> and I t- I on my notes, I type out Disney Plus. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I know. I know. Clearly I don't because I just put and just remind me, hey, it's on Netflix. Um well speaking of Netflix, uh we're back with a few different um kind of reality based uh documentary shows how to become a cult leader is a a new show that is trending on netflix now and this basically goes through the look of a cult leader's playbook for achieving unconditional love endless devotion and the power to control people's minds body and souls um it's interesting it's narrated by peter dinklage which by the way peter's got just such a, a commanding voice i love peter dinklage but uh, it's definitely an interesting watch if you ever wanted to find out, you know, how these people are able to manipulate people to join these cults. It's this fascinating look. Um, they have people outlined in this documentary. Of course, um, uh, they have. Uh, uh, <laughs> I was going to say Marilyn Manson. <laughs> <laughs> Char- Charles, Charles Manson, Manson. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. Charles Manson and you know all these other type of cult leaders so just a uh, very very interesting stuff there you um, know, P- Peter Dinklage is, is such an incredible actor uh, I just can't wait you know he was obviously in um, Game of Thrones yeah I just can't wait for him to be in something um, you know whatever the next thing is for him, you know, I, I, after game of Thrones, he did that, uh, 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 what was it? Cerno. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Cerno uh, de Bergerac. Yeah. He did that movie. And, and I just enjoy, I enjoy watching him on the screen because he's such a good actor. And even in the X-Men and Marvel movies, he's great. You know, he played the the dwarf Uh, in, 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 in Thor, um, in Endgame, and then he ended up uh, playing uh, one of the the uh, Victor Trask, I think, for the X Men movies as well. So he's he's just great. What a great actor! Yeah, and, and by the way, you know one one of his roles that I thought was really fantastic was in Elf. Oh with, yeah, uh, with with Will Farrell, <laughs> of course, uh, be, because he play he plays you know just this like he's a story guy. He's mm-hmm. a story editor, you know. And, and and yeah, he he you know he happens to be a dwarf, but you know he's he's playing a real person. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. It, it, and and I I have to say that particular film, I just get a charge out of every time I see that sequence with Peter Dinklage because yeah. it's just so well done. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was good. And um, so I tell you what wasn't well done uh, was I saw the Ritual Killer. On Amazon, mm. and what brought me here, um, my, brought my wife and I here, was because we're big fans of Morgan Freeman. Okay, and Morgan Freeman is, I guess, this is what they spent their money on. Uh, they spent their money on Morgan, but not much else. Um, it's a detective on the verge of retirement, teaming with a professor of African studies to track down a serial killer performing ancient black magic with the practice of Moody. Um, and so basically this person's going around killing people and taking aspects of what they want out of life from these, what they perceive as strong people, whether, you know, and consuming that organ, you know, 
Yeah. And so it's supposed to be brutal and, and, and it's really not Morgan Freeman is awesome, which he is, but he's not in the film for a lot of time. So I feel like this is, you know, not, not good. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, yeah. And the leading guy that they play for a cop is just, I think he's, he doesn't carry the film very well. He's doesn't have that magnetism at all. Uh, so yeah, this is a five out of 10 for me. Just uh, not very good. Okay. Um, and uh, Dead City uh, from The Walking Dead, the another spinoff from The Walking Dead universe, is great. Um, I can't, I can't tell you how uh, how uh, how good these actors are. If you don't know Lauren Cohen who plays Maggie and Jeffrey Dean Morgan who plays Negan, they are just the best. I love uh, this show is great. So, Al John, I didn't put this on my list. But I have been watching this and oh. I've watched four episodes. Do you like it? And and I'm thoroughly enjoying oh, it. Oh, good. And, and the thing I will say, because I never really got into the Walking Dead series. I, I watched some of the uh, first season, but I, I never really got into regularly watching it. And partly because Nancy doesn't like those kinds of shows, mm-hmm. you know, especially watching them at night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so um, I I never really got into the Walking Dead franchise, but I have gotten into Walking Dead Dead City. And I will tell our listeners, you can step into this particular show without having watched anything else. You, you get what's going on right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for me, the Walking Dead is not about the gore and the horror. It's about the characters for me. Yeah, I'm invested. Absolutely. I'm invested. I understand that Negan is a broken character. He comes from a very interesting place. He turned his life around. He's trying to help people. and But somebody that's perceived to be a good guy might have some bad tendencies. There's all kinds of shades of gray here. And, yes. um, and uh, Lauren Cohen's character, Maggie, is not without sin either. They've had to do what they needed to do to survive in this post, post-apocalyptic zombie world that they're living in. So no one's no one's uh, no one's an angel. No one's a devil, really. You right. know, I think one of the best lines in the film are, you know, uh, basically Maggie is charging Negan with the death of her husband, and they're looking. For, they're on the quest to look for Maggie's uh, kidnapped son. Right. And so she goes around and says, you know, I hope you can sleep at night, something like this, knowing, you know, what you did to my husband. And then he basically turns around and said, well, how many husbands and, and sons and daughters have you killed you right. know, to stay alive? Yeah. So it's kind of like, wow, that that's really powerful because it's all shades of gray. No one's no, no one's a saint or, or sinner here in, in this case. Yeah. So it's a great film or a great TV show. So check it out. Last but not least, Dave, uh, my wife tur- uh, kind of bent my arm again to see this movie, and uh, I was pleasantly surprised by this. It's Vital, and uh, this movie is on Netflix, and it stars the likes of Hilary Swank, uh, who plays this detective, also Michael Ely, who plays Derek Tucker, Mike Coulter plays his best friend Rafi, and um, basically this this big-time sports manager played by Michael Ely uh, gets into some trouble um, when he finds out that um, his his uh, best friend and business partner and his wife were were murdered. Someone tries attempting a murder on him, 
But why is that? Why why are people coming after him and why are his friends murdered? Well, he ends up uh, in a night of debauchery um, hanging out with Hillary Swank, come to find out that she happens to be the detective. So he basically cheats on his wife with a detective that's looking into his story. Hmm. Isn't that crazy? Well, that there's is kind of crazy. There's more, there's more twists. I mean, this is kind of like Fatal Instinct and a murder mystery there's a lot of twists and turns in this and I'm pleasantly surprised. I mean, I know this, uh, this film is getting panned by some people, uh, getting five ratings out of 10, but you know, it's a good solid watch for me, six and a half, seven for me. Okay. And, uh, and I say that the leads of this, uh, Hillary Swank and, um, Mitchell Ely are really good. Um, Hillary Swank is good in whatever she does. I'm a big fan of Hillary Swank anyway. Yeah, no, she was true. She was in a show called The Last Daily. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and I really enjoyed that show, and they canceled it. Yeah, and and people still remember her performance in Million Dollar Baby with uh, Clint yeah. Eastwood uh, producing yeah. and writing. It's just, yeah, she's just an incredible actress, and um, I think this is worth a, a look. You know, yeah. it's got twists. So uh, find that on Netflix, gang. That is all we saw this week. And well, uh, that was a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff to catch up with over two weeks. <laughs> it, it is a lot of stuff, but Hey, all, all worthwhile for the most part, except for the stuff that Dave and I say, eh, meh, 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 <laughs> meh. Skull Rock Podcast ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Oh, Dave, Disney's woes. You know, they recently had this past week the uh, quarterly earnings call. And I feel like Bob Iger's on his, uh, he, he, he's he got a lot of stuff just to address. It's it's bad. <laughs> it's, it's not good. I feel like um, when you hear him on the call, uh, there's a tone in his voice that almost feels like he's apologizing a lot of times. It's, you know, he tries to be very stoic. And I remember listening to his investor calls and he's very strong figure, very, you know, commanding. And yes, he still tries it, but um, there's the truth that can be heard if you listen in between the lines. So here's some takeaways from it, Dave. Are you ready? Yeah, go for it. All right. So one movies did movies. Disney did not have the hits this summer. Uh, Biger's quoted as saying disappointing. We don't like to take that lightly. He points to Disney's tremendous run over the last decade with blockbusters like Avatar and Frozen. And he's always known how to exploit his robust intellectual properties with TV spinoffs and character merchandise in the parks. So um, it's acknowledgement of a failure there. Number two, parks, resorts, and cruises. Overall, the parks had cruise revenue increased 13% to $8.3 billion in attendance in Walt Disney World, Florida. But it was offset by attendance at this time from parks in Shanghai and Hong Kong, um, Iger said, quote, book occupancy for upcoming Disney cruises is at 98%, which is good. And I can tell you that there are cutbacks at the resort level. You know, we, we didn't have housekeeping, but every other day at the resort, which is new. And, um, and by the way, I don't mind that. Uh, you know, I, as you know, I travel a lot mm-hmm. and a lot of the hotels I go to, um, you know, will say, um, you know, we are not going to do housekeeping every day unless you request it, mm-hmm. you know, and if you need more towels or this or that, just call housekeeping. I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. If I'm in a hotel room for a couple of nights. Yeah. 
You know, I'm okay. They don't have to come in every day and straighten everything up. I, yep. I mean, honestly, yep. um, you know, just having fresh towels is, uh, you know, each day is all I need. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, but it's interesting, you know, because they're, they're employing that at the parks, you know, yeah. and I know that the parks were not um, full when I went, uh, when I went to Walt Disney world. And of course, yes, parks may have increased, but you know, they are now starting to operate at full capacity. There was a time over the past year, uh, 16, 19 months where, you know, some of the parks were still closed. They have a zero tolerance policy there in, in China. You know, yeah. so they're, you they're, know, the, the other thing I'm going to point out is that if you want housekeeping every single day that you're staying in a hotel, uh, there's a cost to that, mm-hmm. you know, and I think what, what all of these companies are trying to do is they're trying to balance those costs, Sure, you know, what they're charging you for the room and what it's costing to operate the resort, yeah. you know, and, and I think if you cut back and you're only going to go in and do housekeeping every couple of days or whatever, every other day or every two or three days or only on request, uh, I think that's a good thing because it, it, it does help to um, manage costs. Sure. Sure. I, I, I see it as a plus, but you know, um, hopefully they can be more forthcoming and telling their guests that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, really. Just let us know because we really need some towels for the kids. We really do. Uh, how about streaming? <laughs> you know, uh, they've lost a lot of money on streaming. Spent a lot of money doubling doubling down over content over the past year, year and a half here during the pandemic era. Um, Disney's direct to consumer offerings like Disney Plus, ESPN, Hulu increased nine percent to five point five billion, and he says plans are significant. Um, churn or loss of subscriptions was, was, which was heartening. You know, a lot of that, Dave, from what I saw was um, definitely overseas with their uh, Indian market um, yeah. in India and, um, and some of the growth there. But of course, Netflix as a, I guess, as a rival a streaming service had net gains of almost, uh, was it 500 or 50 million subscribers or something well, I think it was like 5 that. million subscribers. 5 million subscribers. Was something a lot. It was a lot. But yeah, I think a lot of that is because that, they stopped I, I sharing. They stopped sharing yeah, their passwords. That, that they were cracking down on the password sharing. And now Disney's going to be cracking down on password sharing, uh, which is what they should be doing. Uh, and, and I will tell you that uh, the streaming services, for, for you know, when they all started launching, it was an arms race. They were throwing money at these things. And there was a lot of garbage created, mm-hmm. a lot of garbage. There was some terrible shows uh, that were just slapdash put together together uh and i think that they need to retrench uh and focus on quality and not just do six episodes or eight episodes you know give us a 15 episode season of a good show a good quality show i would like to see 15 episodes for a season of the Mandalorian or 16 episodes you know uh and, and there's other shows out there you know, doing these, you know, six, I, I, I mean, look, I, I, the uh, Secret Invasion. Yeah. You know, what was that? Six episodes. Yep. You don't even want to let me. And, yeah. and, and it was a misfire. And we didn't even talk about Secret Invasion. Jeez, yeah. Dave. So, oh, you know, the, the thing I would say is focus on the quality. And by the way, Disney, their foundation is quality. It got to be. They're yeah. a premium. They're a premium brand. And we expect premium content. 
I, that's just the bottom line, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You know? So streaming, yeah, it's interesting. We'll talk a little bit about their streaming por- uh, portion, but number four, cord cutting impact is unmistakable. Uh, Iger rattled nerves recently when he suggested Disney's linear networks like ABC, FX, and National Geographic may not be essential to its core business, and it's looking to possibly sell them off. In today's earning report, they were partially affirming that uh, with the networks decreased, um, linear networks decreased profits from seven to six point seven billion. Uh, ESPN. Branded as a branded sports book for fans, they're going to partner with Penn Entertainment in a $2 billion deal so that they can start their betting book app. So that's going to be interesting. Um, you know, it was only a matter of time before they were going to get into gambling with ESPN because it's become such a huge, huge market. Uh, and uh, I... I've always been of the mind that I didn't think gambling was part of the Disney brand uh, and ESPN is part of Disney, but I think they're setting it up for a potential spinoff or, or take on, uh, you know, uh, a equity partner uh, or some sort of a partner. And maybe they spin ESPN off into its own standalone company. Yeah. I, the, they can sell off ESPN and be a licensor for that content, but they don't have to necessarily be owning it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, they could still own, uh, own this, uh, a big chunk of the spinoff company. Sure. You know, uh, but have it as a standalone and then, you know, go full bore into, you know, sports betting, go sport, you know, that you could open up an ESPN uh, casino. You could, yep. uh, you know, there, there's so many things you can do with the ESPN brand. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, you got to figure out what you want to keep in terms of your, your own brand positioning. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and by the way, you know, when they did the Fox acquisition, there was a lot of stuff that came with that, that they still, I think are digesting and there's things that they are going to need to sell off and, and, and just spin off uh, out of the company. You well, know? you know, that purchase, they can make good on, on, and, and make some money of it back if they went ahead and started licensing a lot of that property off again and yeah, make money exactly. off it. I mean, there's possibilities yeah. there. Uh, last but not least, you know, there's a big rumor about uh, Iger uh, possibly priming Disney to be bought or sold to Apple, which we can talk a little bit about. But, of course, he can't talk anything about it. He goes, quote, it's not something we obsess about. But, of course, he can't talk about it because that would be um, stock tampering in situations like that because anytime uh, there's talk about that from from heads of state, right, you're going to mess with the stocks and that's never good. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, something, this is a rumor that's bounced around for some time. Uh, and, and my, my view on it is that I don't think that uh, this will happen, not with the way Disney is today. Right. Uh, maybe with a slim down Disney, maybe if they sold off the, you know, ABC and uh, Freeform and Nat Geo and some of that uh, and spun off ESPN, uh, maybe uh, that would be a an attractive acquisition 
for uh, Apple. But the other thing that people have to realize is the regulatory environment today is such that uh, a, a combination of Apple and Disney might be very, very difficult to get approval for. And there you uh, go. That, that would be challenges on that kind of uh, an acquisition uh, by Apple. And, and I don't think anybody really wants to go through that right now. So, well, well, speaking of which, I mean, that moves us into our Hollywood Reporter article about the sale of Disney to Apple. Don't count it out this time. You were mentioning the regulatory issues of big brands like Comcast owning Universal and owning Comcast and the distribution network that they own and and the different stuff that they own. It's becoming um, – Oh, what's the word I'm looking for, Dave? I mean, it's Un- it, unmanageable. It, well, it is some unmanageable. These, some it's these becoming, becoming so big, they're unmanageable. It's, it's becoming unmanageable, but they're also becoming a monopoly because yeah. you have the you have the the tech company owning the form of distribution in their internet, also owning the entertainment aspect, and also owning you know the technology that is being sold to consumers to present that entertainment. I mean, it's like yeah. the whole thing. And so yeah. can you imagine Disney and Apple getting together? They own, they own the store to sell the, the stuff. They own the streaming platform. They own the technology. They own so many, so much of that stuff that it's becoming a monopoly. And um, big tech is really getting out of control, in my opinion. So I'll tell you one thing. Uh, Apple is a two and a half to three trillion, depending on where the stock price is. But it, it's a two and a half trillion dollar company. And I read uh, in one of the financial uh, papers that uh, that Apple could buy Disney for two years worth of cash flow. Yes. Which, which, you know, Disney's valued at, you know, $160, 170000000000 billion company, but Apple's a $2.5 to $3 trillion company. Yes. So they, they could go out and just gobble up what they want, and that's where the regulatory issues come into to play, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, yeah. for Apple to have, you know, so you know a billion devices out in the world Mm -hmm. and then to control that kind of content and you know news organizations and all of that kind of stuff that that raises a lot of red flags for people in washington oh it certainly does i mean you when you own the pipeline and the distribution method you own information you own you own people you know like that and so you control everything you control the way it's said i mean remember the time when Apple thought it was a good idea to ha- have the U2 album put on everybody's iPods. You just woke up one morning and there you yeah. had it. The new U2 album was there, whether you wanted it or not. Right. I mean, and I wanted it, which is great, but I know hundreds of people that didn't want it. Yeah. And that that's not right. You know, I mean, that's them controlling what shows up in your personal device. Yeah. You know? Even if it's free. Even if it's free, it's not cool. Yeah. Right. You know, so who knows, man? Well, um, how about this? You know, Iger, uh, <laughs> uh, former Disney executive return of, as advisors. Uh, can you believe Tom Staggs and Kevin Mayer is consulting on the business again? Can you believe it? Yeah, I, you know, I, I look, I, I don't blame him for doing this. The, those were two uh, well 
well-known, well-liked executives uh, at Disney that both were passed over for the CEO position. Uh, And both uh, Mayer and Staggs are partners in uh, Candle Media, Mm -hmm. uh, which, uh, you know, they look, they're out there doing their thing. And uh, I, I don't blame Iger for bringing in people like this who know the company, and they're brought in as consultants to look at and work with Jimmy Pitaro, who's heading up ESPN on what they can do with ESPN. Yeah. Yeah. You know, smart. So, yeah, I think it's very smart. And uh, and and who knows, maybe maybe you've got a couple more guys that are back in the mix for the CEO position. I think so. Yeah, I mean the writing's on although the wall. they claim they they I, you know they're 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 claiming they're not interested at this point because you know they're they've got their own thing going on. Oh, why but wouldn't they be interested? But you know what talks, Dave? Money. Of course, money talks. <laughs> money talks. BS walks. That's right. right. That's right. Well, speaking of money, you know, is there another franchise in action right now that's kicking on all cylinders like John Wick? I I don't know. Uh, you tell me, Dave, but uh, the Continental trailer reveals Mel Gibson's mysterious villain. Uh, the trailer for John Wick's first spinoff has been released. I'm excited about this because I'm a fan, Dave. Yeah. Can I'm you a- can you still hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, because you're frozen on my machine. Oh, okay. Well, let it go, Dave. Let it go. Oh, no, uh, here we go. Okay. We're back. <laughs> okay. right. I don't know what's going on. Oh, right. some weird, there's some weirdness, I guess, those satellites. But yeah. co- the Continental from the world of John Wick is Peacock's three-part series set roughly 40 years before the events of John Wick in the film Saga. It focuses on the events surrounding a Hotel for Assassins in New York City and stars Colin Woodle from The Purge, Winston Scott, the young version of the Continental Hotel owner played by Ian McShane and Keanu Reeves in in the Keanu Reeves movies and Mel Gibson also stars as a character named Cormac, the underworld Kingpin and the hotel's current manager. Uh, I like seeing this Dave, this uh, I now the fact that it's streaming though on uh, Peacock um, gives me a little pause because I don't want it to diminish uh, my thoughts on, on the whole John wick universe, but I'm going to give it a shot. Hey, I watched the trailer. Yeah. The the trailer looked good to me. I'm going to I'm going to give it a shot. That's good, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Let's see what happens for sure. Okay, so Dave, in the last couple of weeks there've been a lot of notable passings. Um so we'll kind of mention it here. It's very unfortunate, but man, there's a lot of a lot of big people that passed away. Johnny Hardwick of the voice the voice of Dale Gribble on King of the Hill dies at 64. Um he played the exterminator on the Fox show during its entire 13 season run and received an Emmy in 1999. Johnny Hardwick. Wow. How about yeah, that? That that was, uh, you know, it, it was sad to see. I mean, 64, that's, he's a youngster. He is a youngster and just an iconic character. there, King of the Hill. You got to yeah. love Dale. Uh, also Mark Margulis, uh, the actor on breaking bad and better call Saul dies at 83. He received Actor a, Salamanca. There you go. Uh, you may not know the name, but you know his face. Uh, he's been everywhere. Scarface, Ace Ventura, Pet Detect- Detective Oz, and six of the uh, Darren Aronofsky movies. That's a lot. Um, he, he, was, uh, he was a great character on uh, Better Call Saul. Yeah. 
really a great character. Um, uh, if you're a fan of Better Call Saul, you know who we're talking about. Uh, he plays one of the uh, uh, heads of the uh, Salamanca uh, cartel. <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, it's it's just uh, it was such a great character, especially towards the end of the series. For sure. For sure. Also, in passing this uh, this past couple of weeks, uh, William Fredrickin, um, Friedkin, 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 William Friedkin. Friedkin. Oh, thank you, thank you for correcting me. Uh, the director of The French Connection and The Exorcist dies at eighty seven. Uh, there's a win- there's a reason why he's an Oscar winner. Those are two just hallmark movies: The French Connection and The Exorcist. Some of my favorites, Dave. By the way, uh, after he, you know, after I read that he had passed away, um, I did rewatch the French Connection, which you can, you know, on on some of these services, you you know, for three ninety nine, you can you can you know, rent it uh, to watch, mm-hmm. uh, and and I'm sure there's probably it's probably free on some service. Oh, yeah, I, I couldn't find it, yeah, yeah. but um, you know, no, it's not. It wasn't on Hulu. It wasn't on Hulu. Okay, no, maybe and it's I on AMC because it's a twentieth century fox film wow uh but you know french connection what a great movie yeah uh you know gene hackman as as popeye doyle and uh roy scheider as his partner right i mean really a terrific film uh and and because uh, i i read of william friedkin's passing i i wanted to rewatch that film i hadn't seen it in a long time uh and and it just what a what a terrific movie i have 100% 100% I agree. And the other surprise was I didn't realize he was married to married to Sherry Lansing who I think was a former uh CEO of Paramount. Wow, there you go. Or you know, she was a big film executive. I think oh. it was Paramount, I don't know. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um well, speaking of uh, great filmmakers, how about Arthur Schmidt who's a Oscar-winning editor on our topic for today, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yeah, what a shame Gump. this was. Yeah, he passes away at the age of 86, Dave. Um, he cut 10 of Robert Zemeckis' movies, including the Back to the Future trilogy, Castaway, yeah. and Coal Miner's Daughter. I mean, wow, what what a huge body of work from this guy. Yeah, absolutely. A really talented guy. You know, he worked on Back to the Future, as you mentioned, and uh, but who framed Roger Rabbit? I mean, you look know, at all of these uh, great films he worked on. Marathon Man, Jaws 2, Ruthless People, Beaches, The Rocketeer, Last of the Mohicans, Congo, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Forrest Gump, Death Becomes Her, What Lies Beneath, Castaway Flight. I mean, these are all great films. This guy. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. All right, Dave, uh, you might uh, be a fan of this uh, this crooner. I know I am, Tony Bennett. The gold standard of singers everywhere dies at the age of 26. Uh, this happened a couple of weeks back. 96. What did you I said say? 26. Oh, 96. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I got that mixed up with this next line. He collected 20 Grammy Awards and found immortality with I Left My Heart in San Francisco and connected with the younger generation due to the great comebacks of uh, music history being, I guess, uh, the subject of a lot of great duets and albums over the years with people uh, being tied with Lady Gaga and... Uh, um, Phil Collins and so many other people. I think, he, yeah, I think he did some stuff with Paul McCartney. Oh yeah, certainly did. I don't think yeah. there's a single person he didn't kind of pair up with as a who's yeah. who in music over the, the past 50 years. I mean, he's prolific. 
Yeah, I had an opportunity um, uh, to see him, but it was more of like he did a guest appearance at a concert. And I believe it was a Paul McCartney concert uh, at Staples Center. And uh, and he came out and uh, did a duet uh, uh, with, I think, Paul McCartney. I'm not sure. I can't remember quite late, but, but I did see him and, and, and he was amazing. You know, when yeah. I saw him, he was in his, his mid to late seven, uh, excuse me, mid to late eighties. Yeah. And, and he ran out on stage. Yeah. You know? Wow. And, uh, you know, he just, he had a great stage presence and a great personality and talk about an incredible life. 96 what a full incredible life he had oh certainly you know he's old school as they get and he was able to transcend entertainment in a way that he just kept being relevant over all these decades it's just uh, quite a feat actually so uh, rest in peace uh you also mentioned this josephine chaplin ex and daughter of charlie chaplin dies at 74 um i guess it's the end of an era dave yeah, it, it really is. Um, she was one of his many children, and she actually ran the family office. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I mean, that's just the that's the end of the line, you know. Um, and I will say this. Uh, this is re- more recent um, from this past week. Paul Rubens, known as Pee Wee Herman, um, he dies at the age of 70. Uh, he, two-time Emmy Award winner. He's behind the character with the groundlings on spark uh, on sparkling Sunday mornings kids show and hitting the big screen. Of course, he's a big uh, Disney person as well, being big fans of not only the House of Mouse but also lending his voice to the Rex droid on Star Tours and is still being heard today at uh, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge as the uh, the DJ droid in Oga's Cantina. Um, you know, I think yeah, uh, this was this was a bit of a shock. Um, yeah. I knew Paul. Oh, um, OK. Uh, Paul and I were on uh, the 30th anniversary of CalArts planning committee because he's a CalArtian. Uh, he's a, he's, yeah, he's a CalArts alumni. And um, uh, and then when we finished the 30th anniversary bash at the school, uh, we we reconstituted the Alumni Association and he was president and I was vice president of the Alumni Association. And, um, you know, he also served for a period on the uh, the board of trustees uh, at CalArts. And, uh, you know, he was he was just uh, an incredibly nice guy uh, and a quirky individual and and, and you know, very creative uh, and this was just such a, such, such a shock, by the way, a lot of people don't realize it, but he's the one that gave Tim Burton his shot at directing his, uh, Tim's first feature film. Yeah. And that, that was Pee Wee's big adventure. That is, that is quite, quite a bit. And, uh, yeah. I, once again, those are two guys, uh, also, you know, Tim being from CalArts as well with amazing vision and great artistic chops. I mean, th- th- this is awesome. Yeah, wow. yeah, but uh, R.I.P. Paul. Uh, R.I.P. I mean, it was very, very shocking. But you know, a pop culture icon uh, who uh, will live on. Yeah, uh, well, with, with the five seasons of the uh, Pee Wee Herman show. In fact, I was I I ran into an art director on the Pee Wee Herman show last night. 
uh, at a uh, gallery opening uh, for my uh, friend uh, Alan Bodner. And I'll talk about that yeah. at the end of the show. But but we were talking briefly about Paul. So, wow. Wow. Well, that's it. Uh, well, apparently, you know, he'd been battling, uh, you know, cancer, I guess, as well. For, for the last six years, apparently. Yeah. yeah. yeah we'd, we'd never know. But um, battling dementia, yeah. Alzheimer's disease and cancer. But um, yeah, just uh, just a great talent, you know. Yeah. Anyway, uh, rest in peace, Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubens. So. Uh, all right. Now, here we are at the part of the program that we love. We're going to celebrate once again Who Framed Roger Rabbit with the impeccable Don Hahn and Max Howard right now on Skull Rock Podcast. Let's do it. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, we're doing something we've never done before here at the Skull Rock Podcast. We've got not one, but two fantastic guests. We've got Disney legend Don Hahn, who's been on the show numerous times. Welcome back, Don. Thank you. And we've got legendary producer Max Howard, who's been on the show before. We've got them both together this time, and we're going to be talking about Roger Rabbit for the entire hour. And as everybody knows, this year is the 35th anniversary of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So, Max, welcome to the show again. Thank you. Thank you. So, guys, I because we haven't done this before, we're going to stumble a little bit, I'm sure. But the first question I wanted to ask each of you, and I'll start with you, Don, is how did you get involved with Who Framed Roger Rabbit? What, what, who came to you and said, you're going to work on this movie? Hmm, well, um, as memory serves, uh, it was, I mean, you know, and your audience probably knows this, the movie was around as a topic and a book uh, for a long time at the studio. And it was kind of being developed very actively by Daryl Van Sitters and a gentleman named Mark Sturdivant and, uh, you know, several people. And uh, there were tests being done and that kind of thing, but it was uh, not leaping into production. And it wasn't until uh, kind of the changeover of management in 1984 that things really started to change. Um, so once again, your viewers may recall that in 1984, um, oh, uh, what's his name? Michael Eisner. Yes, Michael Eisner came into the company with uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg and a number of people and really kind of reformed and transformed the company in a pretty positive way. Um, so that that kind of was a, the area that I got involved in um, because for the first time, Steven Spielberg was involved in a Disney movie, which was a big damn deal just internally, politically and that kind of thing. And um, we had new executives in animation at the time. And I think I, I think they saw me uh, as two things. One is a person who had worked around animation for a while and knew live action animation combination a little, which I did a little because um, I had worked on Pete's Dragon and that kind of thing. And um, and I was I was also a, a kind of good production manager, associate producer type person at Disney. And I wasn't involved in the next movie. I think the next movie, which was maybe Oliver and Company, I didn't really wasn't involved with. So I was available. Um, and, and so all those things kind of led towards me getting involved and, and going over to Amblin. I think it was like Peter Schneider who asked me to go over to Amblin, Steven Spielberg's company, and sit in on some meetings. And that's how it started. And I was, you know, I was surprised on one hand because, you know, I'm not necessarily a magical source of knowledge on animation and live action combination. 
but I was happy to do it and happy to go over and, and sit in on meetings and start to uh, help where I could. And I think the, the real problem is it was largely, there was a lot of animation and they needed help identifying talent to work on it. Okay. I, I, I'm going to come back to a couple things you said, Don, but I want to ask Max, Max, how did you get involved? Because you, you're an Englishman. You, you, I was you out of, yes, you speak the King's English. Uh, well, I do. And I still, despite being in America for many, many years, I still try and do that. Um, I was out of work is, uh, is the short answer. Um, I come from a, a theater background and my connection was actually Peter Schneider, who had newly been taken on as the head of animation, um, principally because of he'd met Roy Disney during the 1984 Olympic Games and the Arts Festival part of that. Roy was on the committee and Peter was the general manager. And so suddenly when the Eisner, Don referred to Michael Eisner coming in Katzenberg and everything, Roy sort of, you know, asked, he said, look, give me animation. Uh, there's another whole backstory there about what nearly happened. But Roy took a, an interest and and saw Peter as somebody he could bring in um, as, a, as a manager and to shake up the management team there or create a bigger management team there might be a, a better description. Well, Peter and I go back because he came out of the theater and uh, we'd met a few years before. Um, I was managing a revival of The Sound of Music with Bashula Clark. And shortly thereafter, Peter came to London with a show called Ain't Misbehaving. And then he stayed in London and he general managed a revival of Camelot, same theater as I'd done The Sound of Music, this time with Richard Harris coming back to the to the role. And uh, so I got to know Peter a little bit, but not working directly, but we, we knew each other. And then I knew he'd gone back to the States. I knew he was getting married. I got an invitation to his wedding, couldn't make it. Um, and I was working in the theater. I managed, you know, produced a, a production of Snoopy the Musical. And then I general managed a revival of a play called The Entertainer, written by John Osborne. It was the 25th anniversary of that production or of the original production. And Laurence Olivier had played the lead role. It changed and revolutionized the people's opinion of him as an actor. And uh, our production had a very fine cast, but we opened to probably the worst press you could imagine. And so after <laughs> working for you know several months on this show and getting it ready and everything, the critics come and they said, no, this isn't good enough. And uh, especially as Olivier was still alive and uh, yeah, the show closed. And, and so... A few days later, um, I got a I got a uh, this call. In fact, my wife Zoe was uh, I was out walking the dog, and a call had come in. And as I returned, she was leaning out of the window, going, "The Disney Company, Disney have been on the phone." I went, oh, "I don't know anyone at, at, at Disney who who called." And she said, "I can't remember his name." So, but he will call back, and sure enough, Peter called back, <laughs> and we we he introduced what was going on, introduced this film, and I was out of work and. He said, what are you, he said, there's a guy in London called Don Hahn. What are you doing tomorrow? And I said, meeting Don. And that was the, the, the start of it. But the thing I've always reflected on is had that show been a hit, um, I would have said to Peter, oh, Peter, thanks for thinking of me. I'm sorry. I'm, you know, I'm, I've got a contract. I'm doing a stage show. So that was a pivotal moment. And just to name drop, when I did The Sound of Music, the real Maria von Trapp came to the opening. And one of my jobs was to look after the real Maria von Trapp, who told me lots of lovely stories. But she, she also said, you know, when God closes a door, he opens a window. And I suppose that was my moment. This door got closed on this show and a window opened. And there, 
you know, Zo- complete Zoe change opened, in, Zoe opened in the my window. life. Zoe opened yep. the window and yelled out at you. <laughs> she opened the window and yelled out at me. <laughs> so that's a, it's a rather long winded, but that's how I got to, you know, come into this, this wonderful world. And, and uh, Don, I want to go back to you because how did Steven Spielberg get involved? Because he wasn't originally involved when the project was being developed at Disney prior to the Eisner Wells Katzenberg regime coming in. Uh, he had a um, his company Amblin. One of his proteges was Bob Zemeckis, and Bob had just done Back to the Future, and um, was a really hot director. And Bob had been interested in Roger Rabbit for many years, and I think had not been able to really lock the idea of him doing the movie in because he was still kind of a junior director. He had done. Uh, some other films, but nothing to the extent of Back to the Future, which was just this huge breakthrough and and huge hit even today. So um, anyway, and he was in Stephen's stable, like literally in Stephen's studio, Amblin on the Universal lot. Uh, is built like a beautiful little um, group of buildings. And uh, one of the buildings, which is called Movies While You Wait, um, has offices in it where Bob and his writers and his, um, I think even co-writer Bob Gale, who wrote Back to the Future with him, um, stayed. So it was kind of a, a uh, you know, a group of creative people of which Stephen was part of. I think uh, Stephen had been close to Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg. And of course, when Steven Spielberg calls, you tend to listen. And he, you know, he said, gee, I've, you know, Bob Zemeckis would like to do this movie. Why don't you give it to him? And um, so that change happened pretty fast. Wow. And that was really at the perfect time because those guys coming into Disney, they were really there to breathe life into the live action unit. And they they came from live action and and they they knew that world. Yeah. Yeah, really. And and it's, you know, I think it was very tough for the people that were developing it, like Daryl Van Sitters, uh, who's a terrific um, animation director and, and kind of brilliant guy, uh, it, you know, had had to be placed aside almost and put onto other things. And he was passionate about the project. Uh, but it's Hollywood and Hollywood is uh, operates in mm-hmm. mysterious ways. Uh, and and uh, and it happened really fast. So and I think that the thing that was exciting and scary to everybody was it was a Disney Steven Spielberg collaboration, which was just never had happened. And everybody knew that Steven was a fan of Walt Disney and his work. Um, but to actually have Steven working and Bob Zemeckis working on a Disney film was a really big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Max, uh, how uh, you, you talked to Peter, he offered you uh, this uh, opportunity in London. And the next day you did meet with Don. How did that meeting go? You you guys had known each other before that, right? Uh, no, well, no, I, you probably that's a question of uh, for, for Don, really. But we, you know, we met, we talked. Well, Don's going to Don's going to verify everything you're saying. Yeah. Well, I suppose, <laughs> you know, I mean, the reason I mean, the because re- I knew I mean, let's not mess around. You know, I know uh, my, my dad was an actor. I grew up in, you know, with, we've several generations back in the theater. I was born in the theater almost. You know, I've worked in every aspect of the theater from being a child actor to stage manager, director, producer. I've done, I've worked in the box office. I'd worked backstage. And so that was my, that was ingrained in me. And so what was spectacular, I mean, after many interviews, including a final one with, with Richard Williams, um, you know, I was given the job. But I, the, the bottom line is I knew my way around London and how to get things done. I can get you tickets for any West End show and did, um, you know, and so that was 
But I, I do, you know, recall, well, my, what was I was so excited about? I mean, I just described my career before that. You go to, the, you know, you, you're managing a show. People are buying tickets. You're working. They stop buying tickets. You, you're out of work and you go find another job. Everything's very short term. And suddenly there's this contract being offered 18 months. I just got married, you know, and it was, it was a fantastic bit of stability for me in my life, knowing nothing about the working of animation. And that was the, you know, that was the revelation for, for me. And there's a little bit of a cliche here, but I, it was Sandy Rabins who was part of the interview committee. There were several, Tim Engel, Peter, uh, Sandy, Don, uh, ultimately Dick and, and Robert Watts. They're all the people that I, that, that, I, that I met before I got the job. So, but I knew nothing about it. And I remember spending my first three days, Don, you were, you, I think you were on the live action shoot. You were in the location work in LA. I was in London. Sandy was there and she started taking me through the process. And of course I was becoming more and more bewildered, this linear pipeline when, when I'm, I'm used to a collaborative experience, you know, with writer, everybody in the same room, you rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and at the end of it, you put on a show and the curtain goes up. And so this idea that you did your own little bit and then passed it over an imaginary fence to the next person was bewildering. And I remember saying to Sandy two or three days in, I said, look, Sandy, I love this idea that I'm getting paid and it's a nice salary and I've got guaranteed work, but I'm not quite sure what I'm bringing to the table here. And she said, well, what you haven't done, you really haven't met any of the artists who do this work. I've been describing how it's done. And of course, when I did meet people and people like Dave Spafford, Phil Nibelink, uh, Andreas, you know, all the, you know, and of course, James, you know, all the people in there, and of course, Richard, I suddenly went, okay, so you act and you light it and you, that's the costume. So everything that happens in any sort of film, form of filmmaking or, or theater is, is replicated in animation. It's just done in the most extraordinary way, but you end up, you start with something and you finish, you know, you finish with that finished product how it's jumbled up in the middle. I mean, the difference between live action and animation, we edit up front, right? We don't edit at the end. Uh, you know, there are all those changes and things to understand, but basically the, the rudimentary fact, the fact of all of it and everything that goes on in it is exactly the same. Mm. Just happens in a different order. And, and Don, I, I, I want to ask you, because you met Max and Max was going to essentially help set up the Camden Town studio uh and and be the guy in charge of that um uh you were you were at the sound stages was it pinewood studios uh elstree elstree uh where uh they were shooting the live action can you describe for our audience what those live action sets were like uh because there were there was something very special about them they had to be elevated right yeah they were uh amazing elstree studios in itself has an amazing history uh, it's where the first Star Wars films were filmed, where the first uh, Indiana Jones films were done, and um, and a very old British uh, film studio, very um, well known. And um, yeah, the requirements of Roger Rabbit were that that uh, it, it kind of the creative requirements that Bob Zemeckis laid down was um, there were tunes in the world, animated characters, but when they touched something, they could pick up a real chair or a real can of uh, a beer or whatever they were picking up, and that had to be real. They could they could have a, a gun, but it had to be a real gun. They could have a tray of cocktails, but it had to be a real tray of cocktails, even though they were an animated penguin. So that meant uh, puppeteers with objects on rods um, suspended from under the stage. So all the sets were built six feet up. 
and uh, with the ability to plug in monitors and have puppeteers, really amazing puppeteers, mostly mostly from the Jim Henson world, um, you know, moving things around. So if a group of weasels came into uh, your apartment, for example, they would have guns and the guns were all up on rods being manipulated by puppeteers who were under the stage. And then the animators later would cover up that rod and that um, armature with the animation. So that required some really special stuff. And and also the, you know, I, I, I don't remember all the names, but there were some really tremendous uh, set designers and production designers and art directors on that film. Wonderful old Hollywood, old British Hollywood um, kind of people who, so, you know, like Eddie Valiant's um, apartment with the Murphy bed that folded down and outside you see the hills of Hollywood. Well, that, the hills of Hollywood were miniatures and they were um, kind of forced perspective rooftops and the Hollywood's you know, hills in the background. And they were just immaculately produced and, and made by all these craftspeople. Uh, the Incan Paint Club was a, a full-size, fully uh, built place. And, and I think Bob Zemeckis in particular wanted sets with four walls and a ceiling, which is not always the case. Usually they don't have ceilings, so you can light them. Um, so they were beautiful finished spaces in many cases and uh, and just, you know, unspeakably gorgeous. Um, so that was a real treat. And uh, but because of that, in large part, the filming was going slow and um, we were anxious to get some of the animation so we could get started. Uh, but there was a lot of setup to do. And I think that's what, what led to uh, interviewing Max, uh, which went well. We met, um, as I remember it, this this is like a lead into a song, the Yes, I Remember It Well song from uh, Maurice <laughs> Chevalier. So uh, Google it. Kids at home, you might want to Google that. Um, but uh, we met, I, I want to say late afternoon or even into the evening at uh, in Soho Square at the offices of, was it Warner Brothers in the corner? No, it was Fox. It's 20th Century Fox, yes, Fox. Fox shared offices, I think, with Disney. And uh, it was just the two of us, and we sat down and talked, and I got along with Max right away, and had, we had good chemistry. And I was just looking for somebody who could, um, uh, you know, help with the Herculean task of setting up a studio. We had already agreed with Richard Williams that he would give up his successful commercial business. Richard Williams, the terrific Canadian uh, animator, uh, savant, brilliant director. Um <laughs> And and yet his studio was geared towards doing small um, uh, shorts and and uh, television commercials, and his management was uh, like a revolving door. He quite often had young managers who came and went, and it was uh, somewhat dysfunctional. But his people were fantastic. We had some really experienced experienced people, which we can talk about as time goes on here. But um, it was an organizational issue. And Richard's studio, which is a beautiful, beautiful house in Soho Square, was much too small to take on the the amount of real estate we needed just to do a movie. So there were issues of finding real estate, finding a place to to do the work, finding additional people because the studio would be too small, and then finding a lot of uh, you know people in every area of the animation process. And um, and Max was really uh, great with that. It's one thing that I think Peter Schneider uh, contributed a lot to. And Peter was Peter's a, an interesting guy, and it's worth uh, doing a couple hours just on Peter. But um, incredibly smart, and and he brought to the idea of bringing theatrical people, which was his background, into animation, and it was really brilliant because they are very familiar. It's a resident troupe of actors or animators um, that go from movie to movie and put on shows, and um, and a lot of the management and 
and understanding and artistic management of working with actors was not dissimilar to working with animators. And uh, so people like Max and Max were able to step in and uh, really understand the people, which was, you can learn the process, but the intuition of learning to work with creative people was really important. Um, so, we, you know, we launched off and, uh, and while I was, you know, worrying about Richard Williams and creative kind of progress and things, Max was able to meet with, um, estate agents and look at properties and put ads in papers and just do a tremendous amount of heavy lifting to kind of get that place up and running, uh, which we did in pretty quick order. And that sort of freed you up a little bit while the live action was still going, because were you acting as a consultant as well during the live action shoots? I mean, you know, I I think with 35 years, I can be really honest. It was my job to get Richard Williams out of bed and to the stage. Uh, So (laughs) I would go to his flat uh, and, you know. Oddly, Richard had a reputation for being uh, thorny and problematic and all that stuff. For some reason, we got along well. I I really, to this day, love the guy and uh, admire him. And is he eccentric and quirky? Absolutely. But um, I don't know. I just I got along with him. And so I literally would go knock on his door and uh, make coffee and get him in the car and get him up to the studio on time. Uh, Richard didn't need a lot of creative collaboration. He just needed to be pointed in the right direction and he would give his opinion and he would draw. And he was like, a, and he, 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 he would say this, he said, I'm like a set of hands welded to Bob Zemeckis that can do the drawing for you. So if you say, I want a rabbit or I want a duck or I want Yosemite Sam, I'm going to draw that right where you want that character and make it work for you. And he did. Oh, awesome. Max, let me ask you this. Um, you you sort of went through this gauntlet of uh, interviews with all these different people, very diverse people, I might add. Um, uh, and you uh, were offered the job. Uh, and what was the first order of business? Was it to find a, a, a facility, a building? Well, the, actually, the first order of business was that I was taken to meet Richard. Um, at in the Soho Square offices, and this was the sign-off. We didn't want to put anyone in place without Richard having, you know, some s- level of approval. And I sat there in the meeting. Don, you were there. Robert, what? No, you weren't there, Don. It was Peter, myself, Robert, and Richard. And I did not say one word. I was not asked one question because Richard was upset with Robert over something set up for the shoot and they were they were at they were at it and robert who is one of the you know consummate producer i mean i mean seeing him in action is always fantastic and and of course we we sat there and then we left and i remember standing outside with peter and saying so is it on and he shrugged his shoulders and said yeah i suppose so you're on. <laughs> so it was never actually a, a moment. I mean, Dick knew I was there, but there was no interaction. What have you done? Where are you from? You know, yeah. why, why, why does a theater guy think he can come? You know, all of that that may have happened or or, or not. So, um, but it set me off and it, it gave, actually, it, it was from a learning experience when you're interviewed for a job. I mean, it is pretty fantastic to get an insight into the person who you're going to be working with or for or, you know, because I, I saw Dick and I got an I went, oh, okay, gotcha. You know, sort of thing. You know, as much as you could get, Dick. And I, uh, in later years, I became pretty close with with Dick. Actually, we did some panels together in various places. But he he was tough on me. You know, he was 
he was tough. I was the outsider. You know, what did I know? And but uh, but no less so than anyone else, really. It was Dick, and I I grew to absolutely adore the guy. Um, he, yeah. Yeah, um, I was going to say he was he I think he was tough on everybody uh, when when he needed to be tough or when he wanted to be tough on them. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, you know, I I want to share one of the many extraordinary things Don did to get this film made. But one of them was, you know, when you have a superlative animator uh, looking at the work of other animators, there's an inherent problem there. And it can be when you have an actor directing or you know, there's not a separation. Robert Zemeckis is a fabulous animation director because he's a director. He gives notes. Dick would look at the artwork in a in a particular way and look at the animation. And actually what used to happen is that the artists slowed down when it came time to show their work to Dick. There was an, often an apprehension because they wanted to do better because they cared so much and they wanted to, you know, to prove to Dick that they were wonderful. Well, Dick had problems with that. If he saw something wrong and it wasn't, it wasn't, sometimes he, you know, he'd do what I consider something you should never do in, in, in with actors is give them a line reading. You know, he, Dick would go over a drawing, go over their drawing. And so one of the things that Don did, there was a wonderful man called Stan Green who became such an important, I love this man, but he was one of the assistants of the nine old men, Don will know his history far better than me, but I got very close to Stan. But what Don did, brought him over, but put him in the office with Dick. It was an absolute piece of genius because Dick respected the old timers more than anything. And Don put him in there with him and it changed Dick's attitude because he wouldn't, he wouldn't go off at any of the animators came a wonderful calming influence. There's a secondary story about the thief and the cobbler, Dom, which you can either, <laughs> which can mention. There was always a little bit that, you know, that was, you know, Dick's, you know, life's work was to create the thief and the cobbler. And almost Roger Rabbit was a little bit of an, in, an interruption in that process, but also he knew it would lead to some financing as well. So there was a up and down, but there was always an element. So, but Don putting, having the wherewithal to understand not only to bring Stan Green over because we needed these great talents on the movie, because of course schedule and the complexity of making the movie and delivering on time became a real issue. You know, the, the resources were just not there. The film was much more complicated than anybody had envisaged. The camera was constantly moving, slow drifts going on, which caused, you know, to, to, to slow down. So, not only to bring Stan over to have him in the studio and people like Walt Stanchfield were brought over amazing things went on, but to put him in the room with Dick was absolutely incredible. So that was, that's great, great, great management. Don, I, I, I want to follow up on that. Why did you do it? Um, there's a great thing that horse trainers do um, to incredibly high strung thoroughbred horses. And that's the, they will put a goat in the stable um, stall with the racehorse and the goat calms the racehorse down. And, um, and I am not kidding when I say that's exactly, I've done this so many times in my career and all of you young producers out there, listen carefully, but it really is a matter of putting a, it's not a distraction, but it's someone who is not threatening. It's a goat and a horse and someone who can engage and, you know, make a relationship with, uh, the person in this case, Richard, and uh, 
and and the other thing that Stan had going for him is, as Max said, he was from the amazing age of uh, you know animation, working for people like uh, you know uh, Frank Thomas and Milt Call and all these people that Dick admired, and so his stories and the what he could engage Richard in in terms of just talking during the day. So it wasn't Richard alone having anxiety or getting inside of his head about things. Uh, it was a trusted colleague that was not a threat in the room. Uh, that was a brilliant artist, and uh, and so that kind of goat and racehorse thing, and, and I say that very respectfully, was was kind of it. And then you know, one day you can remove the goat, and um, the goat ends up missing the racehorse more than the racehorse misses the goat. But uh, it, 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 it's a it's a pairing that works really well, and it's something that um, in that case worked with Richard, and. <laughs> And that kind of evened out Richard a little bit. So he wasn't having the highs and lows. He absolutely still had the highs and lows, but it was a, a, a leveling factor. Yeah. Okay. And, and also I think it helped to have somebody of, of Stan's experience in the studio, he, real gentleman, uh, Walt Stanchfield later, uh, who was an amazing trainer and educator. And uh, these were guys that nobody could really question or get angry at because they were just masters. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they were in, in the modern parlance, uh, greatest of all time goats. And so to be in the studio and have those guys around was really a, a win for the movie itself, regardless of Dick. And then it also provided some um, uh, not company, but just a challenge to Dick in terms of having somebody around that knew what he, the quality level that he wanted, because you have to remember the studio, the average age of the studio, Max, what would you say is 25, you know, maybe when we made that movie yeah. and, yeah. Uh, and Dick was in his fifties or sixties. And so to have these more mature talents around was really important. And um, Max, uh, I, this is really for both you and Don. Uh, but at what point, once you know, how did you find the the Camden Town studio? And at what point were you sort of adding people in? Well, it became pretty apparent, I, I suppose, uh, early on that you know the things were touched on before the camera moving that the, the original productivity uh assumptions were completely wrong i i i just would digress a little because i was very eager to prove to dick that i was really learning how to do this and doing my homework and i found myself in a meeting i suppose it was of l street you know, but it was with robert yourself and and richard and i'd looked at the productivity assumptions for animation and it and it they were going to do eight feet a week and i and i my really only frame of reference was the was what went on at Feature Animation in, in LA, and that was five feet a week. Uh, in later years, I, we all realised that that was a little that was too aggressive as well. But that's another another whole story. So I I thought I assumed that somehow that the live action or from the Zemeckis side that there was some sort of pressure, budgetary pressure. That guys, this is just a bit of visual effects. Of course, you could do that, you know. And a, that Dick had been put in a position that that um, that he'd been forced into something like this. So I thought I would shine on to Dick and make this statement, and and did make this statement, and, and expecting Robert Watts to react to me. But instead, to my right was Dick, who said, who shouted out, doing his wonderful hand gesture that we grew to love so much, was, if an animator can't do eight feet a week, he shouldn't be in this profession. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I felt, well, of course, it proved absolutely wrong. And it was something that Dick, in, in the working of, a, of, a, of the commercial studio, doing mainly commercials, 
that of course those types of productivity over short periods of time were 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 achievable but it was applied to this film and so you know it was a uh, well and the, the what what dick knew also was the disney animators that he idolized in every way um the milt calls and frank thomas's and ollie johnston's and all this stuff they did 10 feet a week wow. and of the best stuff you've ever seen and this is always been the case which is i don't know i can't explain it but if you take someone who's amazing like andreas deja james baxter which in and of himself is a whole Roger rabbit story um those guys will do eight feet a week and 10 feet a week and it'll be brilliant and and there are other animators who are needed and god bless them who will struggle and do one or two feet a week and and it's 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 a it's a stubborn difficult birth um and i, I suppose you need all those people on a, on a movie and i suppose in any industry you have that kind of relationship of percentages you have the 20 percent that does spectacular at work and lots of it and then the 80 percent who are needed to do the work but uh, are either growing or learning or whatever the reason may be mm. so we had a great crew but it's always been funny to me that the you know the mark hens the glenn keens yeah, eight feet a week, you could count on that. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, on balance to do five feet a week, as Max said, was uh, a miracle in itself. Who who were some of the first artists, uh, Max, uh, uh, that you brought on uh, or Don? I, I mean, you, you really had to staff up and there there must have been people that were working with Dick in the community in London that were naturals. I mean, uh, Dick must have weighed in on that, right? Well, the, the core, of course, was Dick's studio, which was probably done about 40 or 50 people, I suppose. We yes. needed 120 or whatever that uh, those initial numbers were of, of how we thought it could be could, could be done with, the, with, with that size of crew. So, yeah, it was built very much around Dick's studio and then and then recruiting on the outside of that, which was tough because Dick had relationships with other studios in London, other animators in London who he'd either worked with before and the, you know, so it, finding the right thing. What was good for us was we were part of Europe, so we could hire from across Europe, and that and that proved to be you know, very helpful without work permits and things like that. So as we widened the net, but you know, Davis, you know, we widened the net to to Ireland, right? I think you were at Bluths at the time and leaving yeah. Bluths, and yeah. you know, we we always Don will I we Don would find out and hear that somebody might be coming free Dawson Vera Lanfer, of course, you know, came from the, came from, from, from Don's studio. I mean, I presume a film had just finished, right? I think that's what it is. Yeah. Le, the, the first land before time, not to, yeah. be, not to be confused with the 14 sequels. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I, th I think why Roger Rabbit is so important in terms of its, um, of its crew, everyone was from somewhere else. I mean, it was a wonderful, it may have been built around Richard and the, and the core of his studio, but then all the add-ons and, and that, that wonderful thing that, that can happen is that, you know, people can slave away in a, uh, in, in any organization without an opportunity for growth. It's not that they're not talented, but that you have to have opportunity. And, and of course, what happened in Roger is we realized the film was much more complex. It was going to take more time and needed more people to produce it. Opportunity arose and, Don briefly mentioned James Baxter. James was straight out of art school, but he came with a portfolio, managed to get in the door. And then within days, I think it was Andreas who went to Dick and said, this kid's a natural. Well, you can be a natural, but you need the opportunity. And of course, the opportunity was there and because he grasped it. And, you know, it's very rare you have those 
those opportunities that, you know, you have a talent and there's the opportunity. And of course, his body of work, you know, since Roger, including Roger, it's just it's extraordinary. The sensation. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, so you started with that core group of, of Dick's studio. Um, uh, why, why was it necessary to bring people over from the U.S., Don? I think that was always in the plan. I think we always felt like we had to, for a number of reasons, not just for the talent and the animation of it all, but also to buoy up the, the institutional knowledge of the process a little, because uh, you can operate in a small commercial studio in a very different way than you need to operate in a larger production. So we knew we had to bring um, some really experienced people over. And that was throughout the process. I The earliest people on the movie were actually story people that worked with me in um, Los Angeles and at uh, Amblin with Bob Zemeckis. And that was Joe Ramft, um, the great story man of all time, uh, Hans Bacher, um, Harold Sieperman. Um, you know, those people came in really early and sat at Amblin and storyboarded. And when we moved to London, then um, Hans and Harold came over and uh, helped us storyboard there. And then we added uh, people like Phil Niblink and Andreas Deja and and Simon Wells from was in Dick's orbit. And uh, he became a real lead animator, um, you know, and of course, Russell Hall, the lead animator on uh, Jessica. So there was a good a good mixture and, and there was tremendous respect. You know, I have to say that there could have been uh, infighting and a tremendous bloodbath inside the studio, but there wasn't. The people coming over from Los Angeles were very respectful of people that were in Dick's studio and I think vice versa. And I think there was a lot of learning going on. And so, as Max said, it was this amazing, uh, perfect storm of opportunity. If you came into that studio, you could learn from the masters of Richard Williams himself and his studio, a few of the masters of Disney animation, uh, and a few of the one-off amazing people that uh, both studios had in their orbits. And um, and you could move up quickly. Uh, and, and it was a wonderful United Nations of... Um, of talents from everywhere. You know, I think Tom Cito joined us from some productions and uh, it, that he was working on. And just a, a lot of different people from around the world were drawn to it because of what it was. And, and Max, uh, how did how did the Camden Town studio get selected? I mean, you must have looked uh, at a bunch of different properties around. I, yeah, I can't really remember. I think we found it fairly early on. In fact, I'm, I, I'm not even sure I was. It wasn't on the, the somebody's radar. We we'd hired. I was trying to remember the real the realtor that we'd hired on who, who was next door to us in Soho Square. Yeah, it, I, yeah. Oh uh, man, he, he was one of those just great guys who had great chemistry with us and. Um, didn't he end up? He like ended up quitting and going down and working at his mom and dad's pub in the south. Somewhere. Yeah, I think so. But we we stayed buddies for for many years. We've lost yeah, contact yeah. since. But I remember when I moved to Florida and he came out and visited. So he was wonderful, and nothing was too much. And he got the brief really quickly. And it, I think he's one of those guys. He said, "I think this property is coming on the market. You know, come and have a look at it." And what proved to be so fortunate because we took the top two floors. Well, later on we took another floor. And so we were so fortunate we were in a building that was still in its early stages of occupancy. So as we as we expanded, one of the wonderful things was we didn't have to find another location somewhere else, uh, not notwithstanding the L.A. unit, which came sure. on and played a very important role in the delivery of it. But we Why? were able to expand within the building. Why Camden Town? Was there a reason to go to Camden Town or was it just because uh, of that building? Well, uh, for, for Dick and his studio, it was like, going to Siberia. Really? Because if you occupy, I mean, Soho traditionally has been such a hub, a creative hub 
um, but also for the film industry and all the agents and everybody, all the clients. I mean, just look at Soho Square. We talked about it. We were, there was a Fox offices there. You know, everyone, uh, Warner, Warners were just off Water Street. You know, all the distributors were everybody in the film industry worked there. And you're in the hu- a creative hub. You're in the West End of London. And then if you go north and you go, to- you go up Tottenham Court Road to Euston Road, if you cross Euston Road, that is Siberia. You don't do this. So there was a lot of people who were really unhappy about it. But, of course, to get a space the size we needed, we- there was nothing like that in Soho. I mean, it was, you know, it would have been completely impractical and unachievable in the time. So that was a good option. Now we consider, and everyone talks about the forum so fondly of their time there and everything. But at the beginning, it was like, we're going where? <laughs> Is there transport over there? <laughs> I, I, you know, when when I got there, I, I, I didn't know London from a hole in the wall. So to me, it was like, oh, that's the studio. Yeah. I'd like to live in walking distance. You know, I mean, that was it, you know. Yeah, and it I was. Mean, it, uh, it couldn't have been more than a mile between Dick's studio and, and the Camden. It was pretty. Close, but it was. Pretty... But it was Siberia. <laughs> it was Siberia, and <laughs> it was. And it, was uh, it was very bohemian. You know, it wasn't uh, Soho, which had screening rooms and uh, restaurants and the Groucho Club. It was. It was the Camden Market and. Uh, you know, spud the you like spud you like and the occasional cemetery. And if you wanted a pair of Doc Martin boots or a studded collar, you went to Camden and that's where you bought it. So it was low rent, I think, is the actual honest answer. It was no, I wasn't rent. going there. <laughs> no, I mean, I, to each his own. But I feel like that's that's what Camden was. No, it's exactly right. I, you know, I actually like the area. I guess I, I guess I like low rent, but I, I do like the area. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. Oh. It was a it was a fantastic building. I mean, it had its challenges. It had, you know, at the end, you know, 150, 200 people all on those top two floors with one elevator. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, and there were always that. problems with the loo. And um, I mean, it was, but it, I think that was typical of pretty much any building in any London. Any plumbing, yes, yes. And, I, and the- yeah, I remember London as, again, I didn't know that much about it either, but I remember it as still somewhat in recovery from the war years during then because there were still... You know, you'd go downtown, there were still uh, vacant lots from bombed out buildings and things. And there were, you know, veterans hanging out at the tube station. And, um, it, you know, I'm exaggerating, but it was still very um, in recovery, I think, from a, a hundred years of difficult times. Uh, but not now. I mean, you go to Camden now and it's just uh, gentrified and very nice. Well, and, there, and there, also... was only, there were no phone lines, if you remember, into the into the studio. Oh, and the, really? The phone, system, the phone system was governed by the general post office, right? British Telecom. That it was one, you know, it was a government organization. And I, the bane of my life, I could never get enough phone lines into the building. And Zemeckis and people would call and say, "Why can't we ever get through to you guys?" Well, we had two phone lines, and that that, uh, and we jumped through hoops to get those. You know, the idea that you know, now you'd expect everyone to have a phone at their desk. Well, there were two phone lines coming in. Oh, and I, I and um, I did have a cell phone. I had a I had a brick. No, not even a brick. I had the one that was a shoulder strap and. Uh, I somehow I Don why I didn't let you have the phone I think well I probably I probably didn't want it uh, but I, <laughs> in uh, in return I got the fax machine if you remember there was a new invention called fax and once again kids Google that uh, but uh, I was I had one in my flat in my apartment because Los Angeles would be open and doing business at nighttime pretty much in London uh, and so when, if there were uh, issues or things happening I had the fax machine at home one of the first things Don asked me to do. Um, after being hired, was to go and buy a fax machine. 
well, I wasn't going to admit to this American that I didn't know what the hell a fax machine was. So I got it. I went, there's an area in London, which you both know, called Tottenham Court Road, where all the latest electronics are. And I remember going in there and, you know, coming to the counter and saying, you ever heard of something called a, a fax machine? You know, and the guys go, yeah, of course. <laughs> so we bought this fax machine. But yeah, we had the fax machine done and, you know, a couple of phone lines. And that was the technology of which the communication of the film was was produced. You know. Absolutely. Well, you know, talking about uh, the forum, the, the studio there, uh, once the live action was done and the photostats were being printed off, uh, the animation was starting to move. Uh, was there uh, was there a moment where people were sort of white as sheets and saying, oh, my gosh, we're never going to get this movie done? Yes. Yes. Can, can you talk a little can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, like that? Well, the the uh, every movie starts out this way. It's the it's the old, um, you know, no battle plan survives the first shot kind of thing. Uh it, Everybody's a good fighter until you get punched in the face. Um, so th it's the idea that the plans sound good and are, and they fulfill a budget and expectation from the studio. But the actual learning curve in animation was always, always difficult. And this film was even worse than that. So it's a long learning curve of people getting used to drawing the characters and the technique. And then at the end, for some reason, it just is a, a phenomenal rise in productivity in a studio. That's always happened that way for some reason. So, yeah, it was very slow. We started out on the Maroon cartoon, which was the cartoon at the beginning of the film, which was almost exclusively animated by Dick. And it's brilliant because of that. Um, and then we would just tiptoe into scenes that were available. And uh, what Bob was good at with Artie Schmidt, his editor, was locking sequences so that we could work on them. So we would lock the footage and the creative content of the sequence. Like I think the first sequence we worked on was the Maroon Cartoon Studios of, uh, you know, a hippo and an ostrich coming out of Maroon's office. And, you know, the, the studio was buzzing with that cartoon activity. Um, so those would get turned over to us early in a turnover session. And uh, whenever pieces of the movie got locked, they came in the door and they each had their challenges. Some were technical challenges. Um, and and some like uh, Jessica in the Ink and Paint Club were were everything. It was a technical challenge. It was a artistic huge challenge. And um, and Russell, who's the animator, who among many who worked on that character, um, you know, really had to push that sequence forward. Uh, you know, through his own kind of will. So every sequence just had its own problems. And yes, there there becomes a day when you just go, this ain't gonna get done. Uh, and on Roger, we got called to New York to talk about that. Um, it was the uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg uh, who was his butt was on the line because the movie was starting to get out of control money wise. And the live action shoot spent a lot of money. And um, so we were left with a little money in no time. And uh, so we all flew into Manhattan. It was always amusing to me because, you know, we took I think that's the time I flew on Concord, the supersonic you, you jet. Did. And uh to a meeting in New York where we were told we had no money. And then we like helicoptered back to the Concord to go back to our limos. So it was, it was like one of those ironies. Uh, but it made an impression because, uh, you know, to his credit, Jeffrey knew that this was an important film for the studio, but it couldn't just be out of control. And Jeffrey, whose story is really interesting, Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, did that for Michael Eisner for years on movies like Star Trek and things. He was the, the golden retriever, the guy who made sure they came in on budget and on time. Um, and he did that. He did that on uh, on Roger. Did it make a difference? I mean, having that meeting in New York, was it yeah. was it like a come to Jesus moment? 
It, well, it certainly did to us, meaning the producers on the show. And there there was not a, a communication creatively between the show and Disney. It's not like we showed anything to Disney. Uh, you know, so it was really that was up to Spielberg and Zemeckis. Um, but in terms of management and money and all that kind of stuff, yes, it, it made a difference. And it also freed up some funds and some realities of we're not going to get this done. So we need help. And that allowed us to take on an extra floor at the uh at the studio in London, allowed us to start building a small studio uh, in Los Angeles that we put Dale Bear in charge of and um, it, to do a, a sequence, the Toontown sequence, among other things. And uh, and amongst all that stuff, it was probably twice as much as we had originally planned uh, is what got the movie done. And, and did that release some of the pressure by setting up the L.A. unit to do the Toontown sequence? I don't recall pressure ever being released, to be I thought what, you know, because I, I wasn't senior enough to be on that plane. I, I just got the call to get Don and Dick to New York by some tomorrow morning, basically. It was something that I could only, we could only get them there if it was Concord. Yes. That was the only way to get them there. But why New York? Well, interestingly, ILM are not in New York. So there was a combination of bringing people from every, everyone I felt had to travel the same distance for this meeting. He took everybody out of their comfort zone, brought them all to New York. So everybody flew five, six hours or whatever it was, or three hours, Don, for you and Dick, of course, on your little speedy crossing. But it was an interesting thing. He took everyone out of his comfort zone. and Because I think what had been happening prior to that was – we were in the middle of a process, right? So you shoot the live action, then we do the animation, and then it goes to ILM to get composite, composite. Well, everyone was saying, well, everyone else is late without really understanding why. We it, Probably we didn't have enough inventory. We weren't delivering enough shots on time to ILM. They were saying we'll never finish on time, you know. And so I think it was a very clever moment when everybody came together and realized this is a collective problem. It's nobody's individual fault. How do we solve this? This is a... And of course, you know, we didn't see this film. We occasionally, you know, we'd get a few shots sent to London, nothing in continuity, no sound. And we we just sh 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 see these odd shots. And it wasn't until we went to the, you know, did a crew screening just before the, the, the New York premiere, where we saw the film and realized we something extraordinary had been created. Eye lines were perfect between actors and, and animation characters. If they were talking to each other, you really believe they were talking to each other. It was extraordinary. But of course, that was something that was discovered how to do that, making the film. Every other reference, and I can always remember Dick, you know, talking about prior films of, of, of mixing animation and live action and always that the eyes were not meeting, that somehow... The, the actor was looking into infinity, wasn't able to close focus. And, and actually, you know, whenever I talk about when one of the great successes of, of Roger Rabbit is Bob Hoskins making you believe he was talking to a, a rabbit. Because yeah. I, I often do this demo, you know, for my acting background, I suppose. But, you know, it, he was he managed to focus on something that's not there. So during the rehearsal and setup, you have a little dummy of Roger and there's an eye line contact. But at the moment there's action, he, there's nothing there for him to focus on. And it's amazing. He's looking at something that's not there. And if you if you ever try and look at the palm of your hand and find something to really focus on and then take your hand away and try and keep your focus in the same place, it's not impossible because you're going to look at whatever your eye for next makes contact with. 
and he was extraordinary. Uh, so I digressed a little bit in terms of that story, but it, it does fall back into the complexity and why the film needed so many more people and why it was so challenging to produce because the attention to detail was, was amazing. And, and actually it was and, Phil Nibelink who um, first pointed that out to me, Don, of, of, of the eye contact. He was the one who said, look at this, this guy's focusing on, I've just shown Rob, Roger and Bob's looking at him. Yes, and it's not brilliant. about, it's not about that. It's not about angles. It's about nope. focus. What a really brilliant, brilliant actor. And as an interesting sidebar, the, uh, that meeting in New York took place in October of 1987, just nine months out from the total premiere of the movie. It wasn't just the completion. It was the premiere of the movie. And uh, so it was no time left. And, and uh, it also took place in New York the day before uh, Black Monday, the 1987 stock market crash. Um, so not only was the movie crashing, but the stock market was melting down at the same time. So where was uh, the Don, where was the film in production when you had that meeting? Were, were you like at the halfway point? I mean, where where was it? You know, because, you know, those of us that were in the trenches working on the board, you know, working at a desk in London, you know, I don't think we had a reference point. Yeah, I, 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 it was probably about 18 months or so into the production of the movie. I would doubt we were at the halfway point, though. I think we had a lot to do yet, yeah. uh, certainly in terms of, of camera and ink and paint. But I think also huge chunks of, of difficult movie like the, um, uh, you know, Toontown sequence and that kind of thing. So, again, there was there was no time to do it. But that's pretty typical of animation. It's it, it's like Bumblebee flight. You know, it looks impossible on paper, but somehow it works because everybody kicks in and everybody can, uh, you know, speed up and learns and is is able to kind of cut through things. And also the production learns to simplify. You know, I think you start out by making sure every little thing, every screw is tightened on the engine and everything's operating beautifully. And when you get towards the end, the engine's rattling and pieces are falling off and things, but you're still moving forward. And I think that kind of um, you know, kind of faith that you can fly is just to kill a metaphor is um, really in animation. You know, I think these people on this crew really believe they could get it done. They may not have said that out loud. I think the the British, particularly on the crew, were very um, British, very uh, uh, like, oh, we're not sure we can do this. And, uh, and in many cases, they were humble and hated things like compliments. Um, and so it was a very different kind of cultural thing to deal with because in Los Angeles and Burbank, if somebody has a, a good week, you end up doing parties for that person and, and, and praising that person. By the end of the production, we did that in London too. I think we transformed a whole generation of uh, animators in London to Max would throw out parties and bring in, you know, uh, food for people. And it was, it was good. It was a good experience. And those people have become lifelong friends. Yeah. I, it's a British thing of, of not wanting to um, say you can do it. You say you can't do it knowing you're going to, deliver and then you're going to think better of me because I did I, I did what I told you was impossible. Yes. It's, a, it's yes. screwy, but that's they, it's rooted in that. You know, I yeah. have to say that most of the people I think were fairly calm. I I as I remember, the only person that that sort of gave me a sense that there was something happening was Patsy Delord. Who, who said to me one day, if we don't get these scenes done, I'm going to be fired. <laughs> so, <laughs> that always works well. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we got to, you know, you listen to Don now and it's exactly as he produces and it's measured, it's calm, it's yeah. considered. And and if you put that influence across the sea, you can have Dick crazy over here and you, but there's this marvelous calm. He's not mm -hmm. allowing his personal anxiety 
<laughs> to which I'm feeling right now, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Right. Exactly. You know, because it's the thing. So if you produce that that sort of calmness and hey, look at remember the little buttons we did. You know, there was two buttons. We can do it, but Don just did. He wanted to put a button on that button, which was we did it. There were two pins, right? Yeah. And it, the little things like that, but you know, incentives, and it was calm, and just try and keep the atmosphere as light as uh, as light as possible. But I do think nobody wanted to because it was an international crew with people from other backgrounds. People did it; it, it changed. It did change the attitude. You didn't because you can get into that British thing of, and it all goes a bit sour, and it's all a bit you know, it's and it, that didn't happen. But I think it was the it was this wonderful melting pot. I mean, yeah, I, I think, didn't we count up once how many nationalities we had on the film? It was yeah. amazing. I mean, we had Helga from Iceland, for goodness yeah. sake, right? I mean, we had yeah. people from all over, you know, Spain, Germany, France, I mean, Denmark. I, I know. think that's one of my fondest memories of that production was the fact that it was such an international crew. And that's the thing that I often uh, talk about when, when Roger Rabbit comes up uh, is that there were people from all these different countries. Everybody came together. Nobody knew if there'd be another picture after it or not. People were hopeful, but everybody was honkered down to do the best they could and get this picture done and have, I think as much fun as you could possibly have, uh, you know, to, to do it. That, that was, that, that's my impression. And maybe it's, it, it, it's, you know, uh, through rose colored glasses, 35 years later, but uh, that, that's kind of how I remember it. And, and yeah, I, it, but, but then again, I was in the trenches. I wasn't dealing at the level you guys were dealing at. Yeah, but I mean, I'm sure you had your own problems and your own, uh, you know, hurdles to get over. I think that the biggest uh, compliment maybe that we've had looking back years later was that so many of the people in that studio uh, ended up being kind of the foundation of the animation business in Los Angeles or, you know, London even um, in the years after that. You know, Amblin stayed in London and did some films. Uh, quite a few of those people like Nick Ranieri and James Baxter came back and worked on Little Mermaid and yeah. um, Andreas did. So there was a those people didn't just come and do their work on Roger Rabbit. They became uh, foundation people in the animation studio and kind of helped that move forward. And, and we're a really nice, fresh breath of air in the animation business in Los Angeles because it was entrenched and needed a kick in the pants. Yeah. And I think, uh, I, I think, you you hit it right on the head by saying foundation. It was the foundation of the renaissance of animation, that, mm -hmm. that whole period, because really it was when you look back, it was American Tale, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Little Mermaid that really ignited that renaissance. Yeah, I, I would like to take credit along with uh, Max and everyone on this call for the Disney Renaissance. I think that's fair. Yeah. You know, uh, what? What what do you uh what do you remember most what when you think of Roger Rabbit Max what pops into you what what's the one story the one moment you know good or bad that pops into your head? Well, I, what I want to say already told is getting Don to, to to New York, but there was a scene, um, sixty two, forty seven. No, was that uh, there was the Andrea scene? We referenced the. Um, uh, the sequence, which is Bob Hoskins walking around the back lot and interacting uh, with different characters. That was an enormous shot. And I remember it being stacked up in camera and it, we, we photographed it. I've got it in a little scrapbook of this enormous scene with 
thousands and thousands and well, hundreds and hundreds of, of drawings. But I particularly remember that. Oh, I think. I mean, there are. I, I, okay, here's my story because my actor story. Because I always and I know it's the cliche, but if an animator doesn't think he's an actor, I need to talk to him about it because it, it, I can. I'm waving my hands around now when I do it, how I do it, how I engage, where my focus is. That's performance. That's what actors learn. It's what the great animators and the Andreas's, Glenn Keynes, Mark Hens, James Baxter. They they give a performance. They make you cry, and you know. So I particularly. But it was Dave, it's a Dave Spafford story because Dave is certainly one of the most delightful, eccentric, crazy people I've ever met. And the idea that he was animating Daffy in the, in the piano scene, Donald and Daffy. He came in one day and he had, Dave had long hair and he came in one day and he'd shaved his head apart from Daffy's tuft here that stuck out in front of him <laughs> and of course you know being in the acting world i'm used to you know method actors and you know I've, I've worked with actors who are charming and lovely but suddenly they're playing a different part and they're completely different personalities and i thought oh dave spafford you're the method actor of animation and i to this day whenever i see dave spafford i, I call him that and i just thought it was fantastic he came in he shaved his head apart from this little tuft of of hair on his forehead he wanted to be, he was Daffy. He was living the role. <laughs> it's just wonderful. Yeah, that's my favorite moment, Don, I think. Don, what about you? The, the, is there one he, story that pops to your head that you just can't shake? Um, uh, <laughs> there's so many, and uh, I've been in therapy for years because of it. But um, <laughs> the, uh, the actually, uh, it's, it's a little bit off of animation because I had to deal with getting the at least assist with getting the rights to the characters. And there were so many non-Disney characters in the film. And um, we had a great legal staff that helped us with that. But when we were getting towards the end of the movie, we needed a few more characters. And so Dick would run in and say, can we get Foghorn Leghorn? Or, or I, I need a little bit more of Yosemite Sam for this. And so I would call up Warner Brothers and just say, you know, can we grab a few more characters uh, and, and a little more footage from this or that? And and like Richard, Max Flesher, who did Coco the Clown and Betty Boop, his son, Richard Flesher, who was a brilliant director, he directed uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, was my contact. And so Richard would I'd call him and eventually he came into the studio and, and um, you know, visited one day. And so you call up and say, Richard, can I have a, a Coco the Clown for this? I just need him for a couple of feet to run around a little bit. Is that OK? You know, yeah, that's fine. So, you know, you have this kind of odd relationship as though you were hiring them out from a central casting place. Uh, you know, kind of to help you uh, make your movie. And, and, the, and the thing that went along with that was the voice actors. And, and I do think one of the better, best days on the movie was dealing with Mel Blanc, um, who did all the voices for Roger and, uh, you know, or, or Mae Questel, who was the original voice for Betty Boop, who did the voice in the movie. And some of those voice actors were, um, I'm not sure I appreciated it at the time, but they were just institutions in the history of animation. And to be able to deal with them and work with them uh, was really amazing. It's really amazing. Well, you know, the the one story I want to throw out here, because it, it was really both of you were involved with it. But I think, Max, you you spearheaded it was Thanksgiving of 1987. Uh, and you took a half a dozen Americans out to Joe Allen's in the West End for a traditional Thanksgiving dinner. Um, Don, if you, I think you remember that, don't you? I hope you remember that. 
I, unless I was not there, because uh, I a no, lot of times I was were, back in Los Angeles. I, I think you were there. I, I think you were because we went to see Dame Edna afterwards. Oh, well, then I was definitely there because that was a life changing experience. It was. It was yeah, just across the road. He was at the Strand Theater, as it was then named, I think. I mean, I, honestly, I never forget that night, uh, except for a few minutes ago. But um, it just was amazing. <laughs> I I thought that that was such an amazing evening. And that's one of the stories that really has always stuck with me over the years was was really not only the 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 sort of kindness of of taking us out for a Thanksgiving dinner. uh, And it was it was Don. It was me. It was Phil Niblink. It was Andreas. Andreas, uh, And I think Steve Hickner was there. It would mean Steve Ron Rocho. Ron Ron Rocho would have been there. Um, I it was like six or seven of us, Uh, and and I just thought that that was such an incredible evening, and and it was the first time I had ever seen Dame Edna. Amazing, and I didn't even really know who Dame Edna was at that time. What what I didn't realize at the time was how important Thanksgiving is as a holiday in the United States because it's not celebrated, of course, in in, in Britain, I always tell my American friends that we celebrate British Thanksgiving on July 4th, but that's another whole little. You know, we're, we're kind of getting to the end here, but I did want to ask each of you your impressions 35 years on uh, this, you know, this year, uh, 2023 is the 35th anniversary of who framed Roger Rabbit. Um, you know, Max, what, what's your impression of the movie and it's, it's lasting effect and it's legion of fans. Well, I, I suppose two things. Don called me a few weeks ago and said, it's the 35th coming up. Let's, uh, let's, let's get together. And the idea that you're, you're doing this with a group of people who are thrown together and everyone comes back to it because I think for all of us, it was game-changing it was life-changing and and the film's so important we, we there's often great films that are that are made that that have great press and they may get oscars but they don't, they're not commercially successful they're not widely screened and roger has that rare rare thing of being a commercial success and a critical success and and then on top of that the fact that it's of its longevity because it's an animation thing anyway. It's something I really years later realized how important animation is because there's a timelessness about it, you know. And so kids see films that their grandmother saw and I you know, and I saw films when I was a kid that were made a generation or two before I was born. And so that that idea, but the idea that Roger has somehow stayed in in everyone's mind and you can talk to anybody and they, they know of it and they've and more than likely they've seen it. I mean, that's just phenomenal to have been exposed to something like that. And really, when I was making it to all my friends, I couldn't really describe what we were doing. And I and I used to say to people, oh, they'll they'll change the title. That's just a working title. It won't be called Who Frame Right. They'll call it something else, you know. <laughs> <Didn't>, <laughs> little do we know that I know. Oh my yeah. God. Don? It's, un- it's not a given that you want to even see people that you worked with in the past. But I have to say the animation community is, is quite different than live action. It is more like theater, I would imagine, because uh, you're not only happy to see people again after 35 years, but you you pick up conversations that you just left off on because I, you know, because of COVID, we hadn't seen anybody for at least two or three years. And I was, yeah. I, I even told Max, I said, is anybody going to show up to this? It's gonna, and uh, he said, oh, they'll show up. And they did. It was so wonderful. It was just a really great uh, get together. And we'll probably keep doing it until we drop uh, just because it's, they become your, 
your brothers and sisters uh, having worked together, you know, in the industry on a film like that, it becomes really, really special. Yeah, it really does. And I, I think it was a great get together. Uh, and there was even people who didn't work on the movie that came, you know, so it was. <laughs> well, as it turns out, uh, it's always fun. <laughs> that was so like uh, appropriate. Uh, there would be uh, party crashers because uh, that's kind of what Roger was all about. But such great people like one of my Robert Watts, who Max mentioned before, the, the producer had he had, you know, he produced the Raiders of the Lost Ark and all those movies. And I learned so he produced James Bond movies. I learned so much from him and uh, as just a mentor, not that he ever sat down with me and taught me anything, but just by observing how he mm -hmm. would handle things. Uh, Frank Marshall, Kathy Kennedy, uh, Steven Spielberg came by the studio one day. What uh, kind of A-list filmmaker comes by the studio, had his picture taken with everybody, shook everybody's hand and um, you know, spent time with us. And just little things like that really made a difference. It showed how much he believed uh, in the movie. Mm. I, I had met Robert Watts once or twice. I thought he was just a very nice uh, individual, you know, yeah. and, and and my Frank Marshall uh, story uh, was that I was working uh, at my desk uh, in, at the forum and uh, he came around and he had a plastic bag full of pound coins and and he had a stack of releases and it was for all the artists to uh sing uh uh darn smile uh, darn you smile smile darn, darn you smile uh at the end of the film they recorded all of us uh and encouraging people to do their favorite cartoon character voices but before we all went to that facility to sing uh frank marshall came around to everybody personally gave them a pound coin we were paid a pound no no you weren't you were given a contract and you were paid a pound when you finished and i gave you the pound because we weren't going to pay I, we weren't going we weren't going to pay you in advance because you might not show up <laughs> no I, I absolutely remember frank marshall having a bag of pound coins and i signed well, that, the release and then he gave me that, a pound that may have been yeah. another deal because i, yeah. I kind of remember it the way max does it was yeah yeah you, you might have been doing some sort of side business i, I don't know all right i, I made a very small contribution oh. to to that session because i was sitting next to bob z at the, the front and everyone was sitting singing but everyone was sitting down and one of the things it's very difficult to sing when you're sitting down because your diaphragm is crushed and of course my theater thing comes out and i said i just led over to bob and i said get them to stand up and once everyone could stand up then they could move and then they could do that and that's the i think that's the recording that was ultimately used just because yeah. it was terribly difficult i mean you got you know you got into suddenly you've got a contract on one hand and a pound and now we're asking you to sing. And it was like, really? What? You know, and so people lacked a, a confidence. But then once they got into it, and it, I mean, isn't that a lovely touch? That 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 was thought of as something. It would have been so easy to just do that with a bunch of singers and yeah. great. But to actually want to have the animators who animated the film singing the song was, I thought, was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Was it, it was great. Very that was a great memorable. idea. Great idea. Yeah, it really was. Um. Max, any last words on Roger Rabbit? Yeah, I paint. I painted the last cell in the film. Did you really? I just remember, yeah, because we closed up the studio. Diamond was back in the states, and I got a call because ILM had a problem, and they needed to reshoot. We, we had to reshoot. We still had the camera, or we had to reshoot. No, it, we, 
I can't remember technically what it was. But anyway, I got hold of Barbara McCormack, who was the wonderful head of income pain and worked with oh, Dick lovely. Lewis, who was just extraordinary. She had all the paint. The, the, the place was closed down. She had taken much of the paint and was storing it in her garage. And so I called her. We identified it was, of course, it was a cell that had all of the characters. It was a smile, darn you, smile cell or sequence anyway so we had to reshoot it or get it back out to them so we go we go to the of course it's the that cell is missing it's gone somebody's got a souvenir and it left the studio and so barbara and i are we've got the old that little xerox machine we've got the cutter out where we're painting between she and i we're painting it with a hairdryer and we to dry that to, to dry the thing, and we got it done. But Barbara was mar- in fact she had this stuff, and I remember then dashing to Heathrow, and I literally handed the cell to somebody on a plane, literally, and gave it in, and it got there just in time for it to be comped and whatever they were missing. But yeah, that's my my the, but, by last the way, moment of the film. The, a film the, sometimes the, never finished, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, the, did you guys know that there was a side hustle going on in uh, Ink and Paint? with them painting cells for people i know nothing <laughs> i know nothing because if don if don knows nothing i know nothing well even if i did I do, know something I 35 don't know. years I don't know on it you know the statue of limitation is gone you know but but there was a little bit of side hustle where you paid a few pounds and you could get a custom cell done uh uh that you know various artists were getting their hands on no i do entrepreneurial group it was. I do know what Don was doing after dark and after everyone had gone home, which was because Bob Z had suggested that for one frame, Betty Boop's top should be exposed because as a homage to the old time animators who, sure. of course, had no concept of anybody ever being able to look at one frame at a time. He asked us, it was asked to be done and it was done. But of course, that Bob's saying to me, we want to do this. It was sort of became a green light for everybody doing anything in, in a drawing, in a sequence. They were everywhere. And you would probably remember taking the drink, Don, and uh, Roger turns into all sorts of things. Or well, one of the things he turned into um, was was not appropriate, really, when he turned into a uh, yes, penis for a frame or two. <laughs> Delightfully said, as one does. Um, but it was delightfully said. Um, yeah, I mean, it was uh, the Wild West to a degree. And again, a really young studio. And I love that. I mean, that's probably my biggest memory is how how much energy was in that studio uh, in every direction. And um, yeah, there was you know, there were some times where we had to pull people back a little bit. But, um, you know, I, I think that was uh, well worth it to try to make a movie like that. And and like Dave was saying, people knew by the end of it that it was probably something that was going to be a memory for everybody. Um, yeah. And it wasn't always the case. Uh, you yeah. know, Max, you were saying earlier, we never saw a, a version of the movie. And when we finally did, it was kind of a head scratcher. And we did a, a premiere of the movie in Los Angeles that was a disaster. The audience walked out, half the audience walked mm. out. And really? uh, yeah, 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 I yeah. Yeah, and um, it was an audience premiere with Jeffrey and uh, Spielberg and, and Zemeckis and everybody. Half the audience during the screening walked out because it was an animated movie with pencil tests and a lot of missing characters. So, a little oh, bit okay, of, so you know, it, it was a rough, it was a rough screening. Yes, and today the audience is incredibly literate with how animation is done, and we've spent years doing that. Then nobody animation wasn't a thing really, and so we had a big walkout. And afterwards, Jeffrey, to his credit, he said, "You know, if anybody asks us how this preview went, uh, we all say the same thing, which is it went great." <laughs> 
And uh, to this day, that preview went great, but it was a disaster. Yeah, it really was, you know, if after all that work and everything else, but it was just the audience couldn't read into it what was happening because it was yeah. like an Invisible Man movie. Well, you know, I, I have to say the first dailies I ever saw in London, um, I saw a couple of finished shots. I think it may have been Eddie Valiant with uh, Roger coming out of the raincoat. Yeah. Um, no sound. It was just a composite shot from ILM. Uh, a couple of them. Uh, and I all I can say is I walked out of there with a smile on my face and I thought to myself, I didn't say this to anybody, but I thought to myself, this is going to be the greatest animated film of our day or it's going to be the heaven's gate of animation. I think we all felt that way. Yeah, I think we really did. Yeah. It was going to be huge or you know, just huge disappointment, huge success. And thankfully, uh, it turned out to be the more positive of the two. And immediately people started talking about sequels. And we made several three maroon cartoons just to keep the characters alive. Yeah. And that's a, another episode, but it just never quite ended up having a sequel. And I think at the end of the day, that's probably the best for this movie. It's some movies are just a one off and it's OK to leave them that way. You know, I I watched the film uh, like a week before uh, the reunion. Yeah, I rewatched it because to me, when I watch a film that I I worked on with a group of people, it, it you just get all the memories flooding back, you know, yes. from the various scenes and whatnot. And I thought to myself, I, it really held up extremely well. And I counted maybe two three scenes where I thought we could do a, like a digital touch up on something. And that was it. There, there was one where there was a little bit of movement in the hole in the back of the Acme warehouse, looking into Toontown where it, it the, the Toontown kind of floated a little bit. Yep. And I thought that'd be an easy thing to digitally fix and lock down. You know, there was a, just a couple of, uh, of those kinds of moments, maybe two or three in the entire movie. Uh, the rest of the film held up, I thought, really well. It does remarkably so, considering there, there were so many innovations on that movie and uh, so many seat of the pants solutions to things uh, that, you know, a lot of that movie was held together with chewing gum and bailing wire and um, somehow it worked. So, yeah, I think we're all really proud of it. Well, I, I'm going to say, Don, thank you very much uh, for bringing me on to that movie. Uh, I was lucky and, to have you. And, and that was a whole other story we could go into on how that happened. And Max, uh, thank you very much for giving me a set of keys that first couple days I was at the, <laughs> the forum, you know, you because, yeah, it, 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 no, I, I, I actually my first day of work at the at the forum studio I showed up at 7 a.m. and the, the front door was locked. And I was like, what's going on here? Why isn't anybody here? You know, and I stood so out. I stood out until somebody showed up. I don't know if it was you, Max, or somebody showed up, unlocked a security guard or something, unlocked the off, you know, unlocked the front doors. And I went in and <laughs> and Max came to me, I think, the next day with a set of keys. He says, here, let yourself in. Do you remember that, Max? I do. I didn't tell Don. And that we did. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's it's better you, that sometimes way. You, you can become, you know, overly paranoid about you know, security and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You, got, you know, that's the thing. You, hey, you want to come to work and you want to work early and you, you know, it only benefits the movie on every level, you know. You, yeah, I, I, I walked The work getting done, the example to others, you know, that if you, I, I think one of the greatest things of COVID in, in recent years, it's allowed a loosening up of the idea that you have to come in a particular yeah. time. People had to work yeah. from home and we know yeah. people are better. Hey, 
Don and I are the opposites. I'm an early morning person, right? 5 a.m. in the morning, I can get out of it. Uh, you get me in the evening. In fact, this call is getting a little late for me. You know, <laughs> But, you know, I, 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 I collapse. Well, if you think that doesn't exist in our community, in our animation community, we know the night owls, you know, and you know the early morning, like to get up and do it. I think that was a classic example. You're an early morning person. You want to get in, get some work done, get on top of the work before before the studio's a noisy, busy place, you know. Yeah. It was great. I, I, I mean, for me, it, and, and by the way, uh, Don, just so you know, when I when I finally left London to come back to Los Angeles, I did actually give the keys back to Max. Uh, and I want to thank you for that. Uh, yeah, don't worry. After all these years, I, I changed the locks. Don't worry, I changed the locks. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm confident there's still some Roger Rabbit crew still in that building who don't realize the movie's over. It's kind of like the Japanese on the island after World War II. But um, anyway, all right, guys. Hey, listen, it was fantastic having you back on the Skull Rock podcast. I know we'll have you back again in the future to talk about other things. Uh, but it's just a real pleasure having you on the Skull Rock po- podcast. Yeah, same here, Dave. I, I'm a I'm a fan and a regular listener to the Skull Rock podcast. So thanks you guys for doing it. Thank you, Max. Hey, thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. All right. We'll see you guys soon. Yeah. All yeah. right. You take care. Become a supporter of Skull Rock Podcast with small monthly donations to help sustain future episodes for just 99 cents a month. You can do that just like Lindsay and Joshua. Thank you so much for your support of our show. Be sure to click our link to support the show at SkullRockPodcast.com forward slash support. Your attention, please. (laughs) Now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. I could just listen to the two of them talk about this for hours. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh no, they you know both of them are great storytellers and it, it's just it's just so terrific to be able to reminisce uh about that film and, and you know 35 years on that movie still holds up really well. Yeah, it does. It's a classic. You can see it on Disney Plus right now. Yeah. And uh you know, just an incredible piece of work and so many great I mean it's a quotable, it's brilliant, it's well written, well acted. And, and it's just an all-time classic. Check it out. Roger Rabbit. Who framed Roger Rabbit? And uh, it's hard to believe it's been, what, 35 years? I know. And it, and it's so great having Don back on. He's He's been on many times on the Skull Rock podcast, as well as Max. Uh, yes. Having them both on. It, it's just, it, it's so great catching up and, and, and hearing some of the behind-the-scenes uh, stories. I love it. Well, once again, folks, uh, if you love Disney and pop culture, don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. And remember, Stitcher Radio is going away at the end of the month. So please check out the other ways you can listen. You can listen on iHeartRadio, Spotify, um, Google, Apple, um, everywhere else you can get podcasts. So please check it out. We're everywhere. Amazon. Amazon, of course. Amazon. And uh, you can What's also. What's happening in the Stitcher? Where's Stitcher going? Uh, I think it's been absorbed by SiriusXM. Oh, okay. And there you go. It's uh, just like Anchor got absorbed by Spotify. There you go. That's exactly it. It's consolidation happening in the podcast it's, realm. It's happening in the podcast realm for sure. <laughs> I'm sure you'll find us. Uh, you'll find us in other platforms too soon. Uh, We're everywhere. Ever, We're everywhere. everywhere. More platforms. We're taking over, Dave. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, known as X now. So Twitter X, whatever you want to call it, LinkedIn and Instagram. 
And you can check out our whole wide array of shows as well there on the site, uh, skullrockpodcast.com. Send us those awesome emails, too. We appreciate it. Dave and Al John at skullrockpodcast.com, or Dave or Al John at skullrockpodcast.com. Dave, you got a bunch of stuff happening. Well, you know, I, I do want our listeners to know I just launched this past weekend a brand new uh, davidbossert.com website. So, I, Al John, as I mentioned to you before we started recording this show, uh, my old website, davidbossert.com, was on an Adobe platform that's no longer supported by Adobe. So I had an entire new website built uh, on a uh, relevant and current platform. Uh, and so people can go visit it at davidbossert.com. I'd love to hear from you. You check that, check the new website out. It's got, there's like 60 articles, uh, there's essays, there's all kinds of, you know, information. My new books, A Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, Visual Companion, and The House of the Future, Walt Disney, MIT, and Monsanto's Vision of Tomorrow. Uh, those are on the new site, uh, so you can read a little bit about them. Uh, and because it's a new site, there's always something. So check it out. If you spot something that's off or isn't working, let me know. I need your help, listeners. So go to davidbosser.com. I appreciate it. Also, yeah. I want to give a shout out to my friend Alan Bodner, yeah. uh, who is an art director in the animation industry. He's really a very talented uh, friend and colleague in the business. And he just opened a show, which I went to on Saturday night at the Van Eaton Gallery in Studio City. So if you're in the area, stop by the Van Eaton Gallery and check out Alan Bodner's show. You're going to love it. It's very pop culture related. He's got a lot of artwork uh, related to music icons, uh, TV, television shows and movies. Oh, he's great. Uh, including superheroes, you know. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's beautiful. I posted some stuff on my Facebook page so you can get a, a taste of what his artwork is like. So check out my Facebook page. Uh, and again, Alan Bodner, uh, the art of Alan Bodner at the Van Eaton Gallery in Studio City. Check it out. He's a great guy. And his artwork is absolutely beautiful. You're going to love it. Oh, absolutely. We love Alan. So good luck on that. And oh, so with yes. that, Al John, yes. I will just say, as I always do, go out and have a fantastic week. And we will see you back here next Monday on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List Podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. <laughs>